0: Roethlisberger steps up, end zone shot. It is caught. Dragging the feet is the rookie Bryant. His first NFL catch. Pitch it to Brown. He might throw it. He turns. He throws. End zone touchdown. Steelers lead with Lance Moore. To the right of Roethlisberger, Bell is open. Touchdown.
1: All right well Don is not here tonight uh, I want to start out before we go any further and congratulating uh, my my good buddy Don and co-host Don and his wife uh, Mrs. Caster, as we've always called her on the show Michelle who gave birth a few days ago to their second child his name is Ryan Russ uh, they did not go with danger as the middle name I know that's gonna uh disappoint everyone on Twitter who had tweeted in suggestions for dangerous us uh we hope maybe we could talk Don into middle name didn't work out uh the middle name I don't know why I can't think of it right now, but I can promise it's not danger and uh we will talk to Don when he gets back about why uh what happened. I'm sure it was uh Michelle's fault uh she probably wouldn't go with it, but um congratulations to Don Michelle. The baby was enormous nine pounds and fifteen ounces, I believe. Uh, so just uh, a moose of a kid, which which definitely uh, is a good, good sign for his future football or hockey or whatever career, uh, whatever sport he ends up excelling and probably going D1 and pro in. Uh, so it's nice to get off a nice good start like that, uh, 9 pounds, 15 ounces. So congratulations to Don and Michelle. Really excited uh, to meet the baby here any day now. I will be going over there to meet Ryan. And uh, Don should be back uh, hopefully next show. But soon, in his absence... Uh, I considered many things. I considered uh postponing another show, but didn't want to do that as we took last week off in anticipation of the baby being born, baby stubbornly not born and then uh spilled into this week. So I considered that, but we had we have some good things planned, so that wasn't going to work. I also considered doing it myself and uh I thought about this for a while and I talked to uh to the first lady of the sportscasters about it and one thing we agreed is that the more of me in the podcast is usually uh, not a good thing. So the you know the less of me, uh, the better. Uh, I already do the interviews and I already do the book club and I just thought the other segments of just me uh, going on and on and on as I am right now uh, might uh, be a turnoff to you guys and girls. So we didn't do that. The third option was a guest host. Now we've done this. Uh, sort of, in the past. Anthony, uh, my brother Anthony, has sort of been a guest host a few times. Well, I guess he was a guest host. There's really no sort of about it. Don wasn't here. He was, and he talked when Don would have. Uh, Anthony probably would have done it, uh, but Anthony has got his first uh, first game tomorrow. Uh, Yale opens their season, a preseason game against a Canadian university, just like an exhibition. Uh, so it's a busy week for him, so I didn't want to bother him. Uh, and then... I don't know if he's going to believe this, but legitimately the first person that came to mind as another potential guest host uh, was the guy who who said yes and I'll bring in now. uh, He's been a guest before. He actually authored a book, which was a book club book of the month, uh, one that we really, really enjoyed about Steve Young and Joe Montana I believe it's called Rivals, uh, something like that. I can see Best that a, of Rivals. Best of Rivals uh, was the go. name of the book. And um, he's working on another book. He's been a, a good friend to the show on Twitter and uh, has been on a few times. And I just thought, uh, I knew what kind of football fan he was and it's sort of football time. I know that he's kind of working on some things which he's going to tell us about. And I thought maybe it could work. So I reached out uh, to Adam and uh, he was receptive to it. So... Uh, Adam Lazarus is his name, author, Uh, he's done some work for USA Today, Uh, a bunch of different things, Is going to join us as uh, the guest host, so what's up, Adam?
2: Not much, I'm excited to be here, I'm glad you thought of me, I uh, I haven't gotten an opportunity to do a podcast at this kind of length before,
1: so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we're excited to have you in, Uh, I I don't know why, I I shouldn't say that, that doesn't sound right, I don't know why I thought of you, I, I guess what I mean more is, I don't know why you just came to mind so like like oh that like oh maybe i'll have a guest host who should i who should i do i don't know why you you were the first person to come to mind but um we're excited to have you on uh, let's see i have september 4th 2012 as the last time you were on so that's a while ago and that's probably right around the time that you were working on the book right yeah or, or, or I, the book that, was yeah, out the so. uh, book had just come out yeah i was doing a lot of media that the, the book on steve young and joe montana
2: um, and got to have a good conversation with you guys about it, and um, you know, I, I always follow you guys on Twitter and everything, and so i 'm excited uh, you know there 's a lot, uh, a lot going on in the NFL world, and I'd like to contribute where I can there and anywhere
1: else that uh, your listeners want to have my opinion on i 'm happy to provide it and I must not have updated the sheet that I just brought up, but then I remember you were also on right before Bill Parcells went into the hall.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. I did come on. Yeah, we again. talked yeah. a little
1: bit about the Super Bowl 25 book that mm-hmm. you wrote in yeah. Bill Parcells. I remember really enjoying that, and I loved the Super Bowl 25 book, which I didn't actually read, I don't think until after that second time you were on. Well, it's hard for you to read, probably in Buffalo. They probably <laughs> don't stock it there. They, I, I I actually got it at uh it was it was I remember it was just right after you had been on, and I was at a down the street from our house, there used to be uh, a Pepsi bottling. And my dad actually worked there. So my dad's worked at Pepsi my whole life. And uh, when they shut down the when they didn't do bottling anymore, he moved to the Erie County uh, version of Pepsi. And this place then became like a furniture outlet. Well, Mm -hmm. one weekend they had a book sale there, where they had all these different book retailers or something. And it and one it was on one of the tables. And um, oh, that's cool. So I picked it up and read it and really enjoyed enjoyed it. I remember. Let's see, Super Bowl 25 was in January of 1991. Is that correct? Yes. So I was uh, 10, going on 11, let's say. So Anthony wasn't born yet. Uh, my brother Greg was born in September of 86. I remember my parents went somewhere to watch, and I was home with, I guess, babysitters, but they were probably like high schoolish kids. Now, I
2: was going to say that your, your parents could get a babysitter in Buffalo when the Bills go to their first Super Bowl. Yeah. It would be-
1: would be surprising to me, but it, you know what they were—is they weren't from Buffalo. My mom worked in the restaurant industry, and they were busboys from the college, from uh, the University okay. of Buffalo. So they were from somewhere else, uh, which is why I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, while well, they got to come over to come over the house, I remember I watched the whole game, and uh, I was a perceptive uh, sports fan at age 10. Then, I actually, sort of, I was actually telling my brothers the other night that I I can remember. Uh, my, my dad is pretending to be a really big Royals fan right now. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people right, right, so, big
2: Royals fans right so now. So
1: I thought about it for a minute and I said, well, I can back this part up. I remember right around when they won the World Series in 85, I remember him throwing balls to me in the backyard and me asking him if I could be George Brett and if he would be uh, Saberhagen. Mm. And I know that the reason that I wanted to cheer for them was because of the his interest in the Royals at the time because mm-hmm. I I always I never liked the Bills which was always my dad's number one team so I always tried to compensate for that by really enjoying his other teams you
3: mm-hmm. know and, 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 you this,
1: and the Sabres was an easy one because I was mm-hmm. a huge Sabres fan that's actually the reason why I wasn't a Bills fan uh, because I would get so annoyed that people would have the nerve to not pay attention to the Sabres uh, you know and, and to pay attention to the Bills instead. Uh, but So I can vouch for him a little bit. Now, where was I going with this initially? Why did I bring up my dad faking the Royals? I think because you were talking about the Bills Super Bowl that you remember watching. Oh, yeah. Well, I just remember when Norwood lined up for the field goal. I remember thinking to myself, okay, do I want him to make it uh, and have the Bills win the Super Bowl? Or do I want them to miss it and have them lose the Super Bowl? Like, do I want to? What side? Because I really, I wasn't invested in the team emotionally. I could see that because you know. So I, I was yeah. remember like making a decision. I remember going into the Raiders game. Me and my mom went to a, a bar to watch it, and I remember going into that. My dad went with his Your friends. Your mom took you as a 10-year-old kid to a bar? Well, right? a bar probably isn't the right word. Like a Tully's okay. or a Wild Wings type of a okay. thing. But whatever the 1991 version of that was. You know what I mean? Like a I, restaurant. I, I was envisioning
2: bar. like a, a, a
1: biker bar. Yeah, no, not that. School, like gun knife fights and everything. That would have been cool. <laughs> yeah, no. But I remember walking out of there with her and saying, I can't believe the Bills are going to the Super Bowl. Like that was just a crazy – because most of my life they were bad. You know, 87 was the first season they were even 500, I think, in my life. And in 88, they played in the, in the AFC championship game and lost to Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And then 89, they lost a playoff game to Cleveland when Ronnie Harmon dropped the ball in the back of the end zone. They were the bickering Bills that year. So mm-hmm. this was the following year. I remember us walking out. But even right up until the moment before Norwood lined up, I never actually considered the thought that the Bills might actually win a Super Bowl. Like that never crossed my mind until that second, and I just remember thinking, "Do I want him to make it or do I want him to miss it?" And before I could decide, he missed it.
2: I can see that. You know, there's always, you know, because I, I I was a Steelers fan growing up, lived in Pittsburgh for a long time for a while, and um, I remember having the same kind of the opposite feeling about Penguins fans because uh, the penguin, especially because when I was real young, the Penguins were really good. Right. About mm-hmm. that same time, and I remember. At wondering how people in Pittsburgh could care about the Penguins so much when the Steelers were there, and then the Pirates too, and the Pirates were good at the same time. But I, I think I kind of felt the same way when I was younger, resenting Penguins fans uh, and resenting the Penguins because it was detract- it was detracting attention away from the Steelers. I think there's because you know hockey and football are kind of the same kind of fans. It's that it's the whole blue collar, yeah, like, violence, kind of and the seasons overlap. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I can see where there's like a A little mini rivalry in between in towns if it's like the Bears and the Blackhawks or something. But yeah, that that doesn't surprise me that you would feel that way about the Bills and the Sabres.
1: I was such a huge hockey fan. I actually learned how to read because I found out that this newspaper that came to my door every day had stuff in it about the Sabres. So that's why I wanted to learn. A lesson
2: for the little kitties. Yeah, that's why I wanted to learn how to read. That's a a
1: public service announcement
2: for keeping newspapers in business business today. Absolutely. By kindergarten,
1: by the time I went to kindergarten, I already knew how to read because I read the sports page every day, and that was totally uh, Sabres-driven. But I remember the tipping point was the Sabres had like a 4 o'clock preseason game. Uh, And this was in September, and the Bills were playing that day. And the Bills had probably a 1 o'clock game. And I wanted to listen to the Sabres game on the radio with my dad. And my dad wanted to watch the Bills game and made me go in my bedroom to listen to the Sabres by myself. And I was so pissed off about it that I just never I, – like I, I hate the Bills – I remember Man, like your
2: your memory is incredible for yeah, I have a, a 10 pretty year old
1: kid I have a pretty sick memory, and also like some of these stories they never got too like we would talk about them, you know, so they never like faded that much, but mm. you know I, I must have been five or six at this day that the day that 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 happened. I remember it clearly, and I remember it's the day that uh I hope I don't screw I think his name was Jack Butler, one of the Bill's receivers broke his leg uh in the end zone, I think they were playing the Dolphins that day. I'm a little sketchy there about the details there, but I know that happened. But um, I remember my mom came into the room and I was upset and I told her I hate the Bills, I'm never watching the Bills. So yeah, yeah, fine. And then it was almost two full seasons later that I sat on the couch to watch a little football with my dad and it was the Saints and the Vikings uh, preseason, or, excuse me playoff game in the Superdome. Ah and, yeah, that was yeah. a great game. Yeah, it's great if you like the Vikings, I guess. But yeah. uh you know, so I sat down and I said, You know, what's going on, Dad? And he's like, Okay, Saints, Vikings, the Saints team. It's the first time they've ever had a winning record. They're horrible, their fans wear bags, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, how come they're playing? I thought it's playoffs. Oh, it is, they're they're good this time this year, first time ever. So I said, okay, well, I want them to win, and they actually started out ten nothing. That's right. That's and right. I just and they got blown out. And they got blown out forty eight to ten, and I cried. Really? And it was That's... I. I said to my dad, I said, "This is my team. This is the team I love." And obviously, being a Saints fan has been uh, been a life, one of the biggest passions in my life. But okay, so I want to ask you a little bit about uh, about being a Steelers fan. Take me through. Uh, your lifetime, the Super Bowls they played in, and, and what you did, where you were, what your reaction to them was. The well, first one, I assume, was the, the Cowboys one with Dodon. Yeah, that's right. I okay. was, um,
2: my family's from Pittsburgh. I, uh, my, my dad's a Steelers fan. My whole dad's side of the family is from Pittsburgh. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, uh, so you can imagine growing up in Cleveland as a Steelers fan. That My, my dad used to tell me that when he, cause he lived in Cleveland pretty much his whole adult life, that he would um wake up this is, when this, this is in the 70s and when the Steelers were winning all those Super Bowls he would wake up in his neighborhood in Cleveland and all his neighbors would dump garbage all over his lawn <laughs> on Monday mornings um i kind of had the same experience i remember getting uh you know people talking stuff to me it's it, in junior high and elementary school and stuff i know that i was at a, a guy a a uh I was, a, let's see, I was about 11 years old, and I wore my Steeler jacket to an Indians game, a Cleveland Indians game, and I got into, like, an, a fight, like a verbal altercation with a an adult. I was, like, 11. <laughs> so this was ni- 1993, because it was the last year the Indians were playing at, at uh, Cleveland Stadium, I remember. And so I was 11, and this guy was probably late 20s, 30s, and he dumped a beer on my head. He uh, dumped a beer on
1: eleven-year-old kids. That's head. Awesome! I had such a uh, similar experience. I'll tell you yeah. when you're done. Go ahead.
2: And so that that sort of I think that hardened me as a Steeler fan growing up. You know, uh, sort of uh, what do they say is pilgrims in an unholy land or something like that. Um, so yeah. So then when I started getting interested in football, when I started playing football in like middle school and stuff, was when I got interested in, in the NFL and, and the Steelers were getting. Good those years it was the years of Bill Cowher, um, his early years there, and so that was just sort of uh, my passion growing up. So it was a thing, you know, it was a thing you bond with your dad, just like you were sort of saying. My dad was a big Steelers fan, and um, he had just started getting back into it because I, I think the '80s he kind of took the '80s off <laughs> while he had kids, um, and he was just getting back into it. And then we started. He, he my grandfather, had tickets because they lived in Pittsburgh, and. Uh, he started giving it to my dad because he was getting older, so he would take me and take my brother and um, yeah, that's sort of it just sort of built up over that over time and I was about thirteen when they went to that Super Bowl against Dallas. Um, I remember I remember crying after that game, uh, Neil O'Donnell's interception fest, right. Um, and like I, like I guess I was saying, you know like every year, you know it's great when your team wins a Super Bowl, that's great. But when they lose, and you're young, and you're real impressionable, I think that makes you a more diehard fan. And um, the Steelers losing to the Chargers in the playoffs that one year, and the, the next year losing in the Super Bowl, um, and then the next year, I remember I had my Cordell Stewart jersey. I wore it to uh, to school when he uh, was over ten against the Patriots in that playoff game at Foxborough. That that foggy playoff yep, game. At I Foxborough. remember. And I remember that made that all these people give me a hard time about it. That only made me more of a Steeler fan. And so, growing up, you know, I was a big Steeler fan. I still, I still am today. I, um, I was actually living in Pittsburgh when they win when they won that first Super Bowl, the one in Detroit. Got to go. My dad got tickets. Uh, we we drove up for the Super Bowl, and it was great. And uh, I try to uh, sort of distance myself with the work I do. I try to distance myself from being a Steeler fan at that time but yeah. it's you know it's different because it, it, I do I do history more than anything you know my books are about things that have happened in the past and um, they're not really it's not like I'm covering a game for ESPN it's a little different uh, so but yeah um, you know, like you, that, that Super Bowl against Dallas was, I remember uh, was the was the first one um, and the one in Detroit and I remember going to the one and I also went to the one in Tampa with the uh, San Antonio Holmes touchdown and and I remember I didn't enjoy, I didn't get to enjoy the two great historic plays. In that game there was the the James Harrison, Harrison touchdown yeah. and there was the Holmes touchdown. And I remember the, the there was a if you know your history there was a flag on that Harrison touchdown. I recall. I can't that remember a huge what it was. Money
1: play for me. I won the half cuz he scored oh, there. I don't remember what the flag was for. I it remember waiting f- waiting forever yeah. for them to sort it out I to figure out if I won. I
2: remember seeing the flag like right as they threw it and saying well, it's coming back. or just holding or something. So I didn't. I didn't enjoy the play at all. I remember just not like everybody was going crazy. I was like, "It's coming back. It Doesn't matter." And then I found out that it didn't. And then the Holmes touchdown. The to where we were sitting, you didn't know if he was in. No, well, you couldn't see anything right. in our seats, especially because of that field. was So uh, that part of the field, you know, it's the back corner of the end zone is two little feet in the seventy thousand person stadium. So I remember that's all I really remember about that game is is not enjoying the two, like, iconic players from that Super Bowl. I didn't really enjoy them while they happened. So that's sort of my journey as a Steeler fan. I'm trying to get my boys to be Steeler fans. Um, my, my youngest son actually wears a, a Terry Bradshaw baby jersey that my mom gave me, which is what I wore when I was a little baby. So um, And they sit in the room when I watch Steeler games sometimes. Uh, they don't really pay attention to the screen because their mom doesn't want them to. But you know, it's just like everything else. It's like uh, bred through the family. And,
1: uh, what percentage of of naming your son Benjamin was based on the Steelers Super Bowl quarterback being Ben Roethlisberger? I'm,
2: I will say zero percent. Zero percent, really? I will. I will say zero percent. Okay, off the. Okay, I got you. I, uh, I, I'm not sure if my wife downloads this podcast, <laughs> recently,
1: but I will still say right. 0%. Never, just total coincidence. Coincidence. Complete coincidence. Got it. That uh, One thing I wanted to share with you was you were talking about your experience uh, there, well, the first time that with the guy smelling beer on you, the first time I'd seen a Saints game was in 1989. Uh, the Saints came to Buffalo in December. And uh, there was a snowstorm that day at the game. Mm-hmm. And John Forcade was the quarterback for the Saints that day. Ah, yeah. yeah not, he w- uh,
2: not Bobby, was no, he not Bobby Abar. No, Bobby
1: Abar was not the starter that day. I don't think that was the season he set out. I just think he was injured. Okay. And I think maybe, the, maybe Walsh uh, was uh, supposed not 89 to- it would have been. No, uh, it wasn't Walsh yet. I'm yeah. trying to think. He was – obviously when you get to a guy who was in the Arena League, he wasn't the first, second – option it was like the third i know one the first choice would have been a bear he was out and i forget whose second would have been but he wasn't available either so this was four K's first game and it's snowy horrible conditions in buffalo and uh the saints did win but around halftime my dad i went with my dad and my dad said look it. i can't stand this anymore you there's a seat down a few rows you go sit down there for the second half what were you, were you wearing a Saints jersey? Uh, I had a, I didn't have, it was so cold and everything, I had a Saints shirt on that I had, and a Saints hat, but all that stuff was, like, covered by just a regular winter jacket and stuff like that.
2: Well, at least you weren't wearing the, the Aints, the Aints, uh, bag on your head. No, no, no,
1: and um, we were, uh, they weren't the Aints then, uh, you know, it was, uh, the, the st- the end of the Aints era, I guess. Is, I still,
2: I think they're always the Aints when they don't make, when they don't win, though. Anytime right. they
1: don't win, right? I kind of think that. So, uh. He says, You got to go down there. So I did. And then right after when the Saints were taking, when 4K was taking a knee, I remember I felt something hit my head. And then I felt again. And it's like, Oh, man, people are throwing snowballs at me. And I look back to tell my dad to think he would help me. And it was him and his friends. <laughs> That's a little more
2: friendly fire than some
1: right. random dude throwing so, a beer on your head. Right. So that was disappointing. But anyway, we should start the show. So this, All is, right. this is what we got today. So, uh, Really excited about this. Bob McKenzie is going to be on the show for the first time. Bob is the author of a new book called Hockey Confidential, Inside Stories from People Inside the Game. Do you know who he is, Adam? I know who he is from looking on Twitter when you posted about the show. Right. So if I was going to explain to someone who might not know who he is, I would say he is the Adam Schefter of hockey in Canada. That is – well, that's like – Gold right there because yeah, can in Canada, right. Eight hundred thousand followers, I think he has on Twitter, something like that, which was way more than I expected when I linked him the first time. When I knew we'd get him, I worked really hard to get this interview uh, with the publisher of the book. Who, whoever I I uh, reached out to initially was the Canadian publicist who sent me to whoever's handling it in the United States, and I worked very hard. And Bob is on, and I think I had arranged twenty minutes, and we did about thirty-two. Recorded that earlier today. Uh, really excited to have Bob on the podcast. And also, uh, for, for I don't know right this second, if it's the 19th or 20th time, uh, but for the 19th or 20th time, Lee Jenkins is also going to be on the podcast today. Uh, his NBA cover story uh, is, the, is the cover of, of the Sports Illustrated this week. I just got it in the mail today. And uh, that's sort of a change-up because originally Chris McDougall who is the editor of this year's Best American Sports Writing, was going to be on this week. But he had to do a shoot for something he's doing with some running magazine. So we're going to catch up next week. So Chris should be on next week. And so Lee's going to be on this week. I had already recorded Lee's and was going to save it for next week because I thought Chris would be on. But I'm not going to do it that way. Instead, uh, Lee's going to be on uh, today. And then uh, we have a book club update. We're going to end the show with one last thing today. We won't do picks since Don isn't here. Uh, And because we stink at it, so we'll take a week off from that. And uh, like always, we will start the show with three things. Let's play a game. All right. On the count of three. One. All righty. I'll kick it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep.
1: All right, three things for today. First thing, as we've been doing during football season here, we'll start with what's going on in the NFL. Peyton Manning last week, number 509. I think he got number 510 as well. Set the record for NFL touchdown passes. seems like when Manning is close to these records, he does not mess around. Uh, if he gets close to them, he, he gets them. He needed three, I think, to break it going into Sunday night and got it. And I wanted to ask you, Adam, uh, how... What's the word I want to say? How big of a record do you think this is? I think it's it's interesting. It's a, it's an
2: interesting question. I think it's, in a way, it's like... Half of me wants to say it's like uh, Hank Aaron 755 or, or Ruth 714 or whatever asterisk is next to Barry Bonds' number. Um, because quarterback is the position in the NFL, in, in football, touchdown passes are, you know, uh, the numbers that everybody remembers... Uh, the forty-eight that Dan Marino had in that one year that, that lasted for so long—I remember it was one. I think one of the iconic records for a long time. Um, so part of me wants to say that it is an enormous, enormous deal, but I just think because it's Peyton Manning, um, it, it nobody—it's not that nobody cares because people certainly do care, but people have seen him over and over again dominate the regular season and come up short in the postseason, and I, I think there's. Unless he, you know, finishes this season out with a Super Bowl win, or he probably will play again next year, would be my guess. Um, unless they do win the Super Bowl, or so, unless he finishes next year with a Super Bowl win, I think people don't really. It's not that they don't respect the numbers. It's they're they it's, they're also they're also Rams when you think of the super, the playoff success, um, the lack of playoff success he's had.
1: So you um, do think that he needs a second ring to really cement his legacy as well, as I the see, greatest. I guess that's I would, what we all, we're all gonna say he's one of the greatest right yeah, but, I would I would definitely say that you know he's
2: in the he's, he's on the list right he's not he's not at the top of the list for me um, I don't think he could I mean if he were to win back to back Super Bowls this year I, I guess like you could say that he would definitely be in the conversation um, and I know it's a, it, it's a simplistic and cruel way to look at it that's the rings you know rings matter rings matter um, but it's just, the, it's just the environment, I think. Um, I mean, Marino's never going to be considered the greatest quarterback of all time, even if he was maybe the greatest thrower of a football of all time with his release and everything that he did. I just think we, when, when the, the, the you know, I hate superlative, but the superlative, the Mount Rushmore quarterbacks is formed, it's gonna be guys like Montana, um, probably a Bart Star, Otto Graham or something like that. If you want to go back that far. Yeah, Unitas. I mean, it's just the multi. If the ultimate end game in the NFL is to win a championship at the end of the year, and the person you entrust most to do it um, is the quarterback, and it is, then you have to do better than one ring in, what's it, about 17 years, 16 years. Especially. He's been in three. He's won in three. He's been in three, yeah. And he's. Uh, I just, I just think it's it. it we, we we know how great he can be in the regular season, and we know the numbers he can put up. And as much as we live in the fantasy football culture, um, and the numbers culture, I think when it's all said and done, people want to see him do better in the playoffs. Well, that and was it. Win the Super Bowl.
1: That was another thing about the record that I wanted to ask you about was, do you think that the way the game is played now, the way the game is called, uh, the way we, you know, fifty attempts in a game is so regular. Uh, the the emphasis on on defensive holding and contact, the way the rules are, does that hurt the record for you at all? No, it doesn't because that that's not fair because the the league changes
2: every sport um, you know evolves, however you want to say it. Uh, the, today's NBA is is different than it was in the '60s, and there's always going to be an apples to oranges way of comparing Wilt and Russell or Wilt and Elgin Baylor or whatever right. to Jordan and LeBron or comparing you know, the things that Christy Mathewson did in Major League Baseball to what Clayton Kershaw is doing now, you kind of have to, you know, it's an unfair comparison. Um, just the, the 100 years depth, or, or 20 years depth even. I mean, the game today in the NFL is, is is almost unrecognizable compared to what it was in, or even in the early 90s. So I don't think you can quite factor that in. You know, you have to sort of say, yeah, maybe if... if uh, Roger Staubach had played in today's NFL. He would have thrown 500 touchdown passes, maybe, maybe not. But I, so I don't think that quite factors in. But I do think um, that's sort of that's one of the reasons why I, I think championships is sort of a common denominator uh, right. when it comes to that because you you measure a quarterback by the by the games he's won and the in the playoff games he's won. Um, and it's it, the thing with Peyton is. Like, no one's ever going to say – I would never say that it was a, a choke factor or anything like that. Yes, he didn't play well in some of those players. He didn't play well in the Super Bowl last year. Of course, they had a lot of things go against him, especially early on. He was very but, good in the Saints
1: Super Bowl. I mean, he was, oh, yeah. he was scary no, no, good in that game. He, I, I, I Saints I did a great job of keeping throw. him off the field, actually. You know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah, No, I, I think it, it's not it's not so much that he didn't play well. He, didn't, he definitely didn't play. I remember he did not play well when they lost to the Steelers. In the in a divisional game in 2005, when they had home field, right. I think it's sort of his regular season success has been so great, and not only his own regular season success, the teams he's been on. All those years, the Colts had the number one seed, and the, they were chasing. Uh, there was, I think, twice they were really in the, the the discussion to have an undefeated season. Last year, the Broncos were you know amazing in the regular season. The year before, I think they were even better. And when you, you really set yourself up for tremendous failure if, if you're going to dominate the regular season, not just get into the playoffs, but right. dominate the regular season, both statistically and as a team, and not cash it in at the end of the season, I think that's just, the disparity between those two things is so different because, I mean, even Brady, Brady's had a few really great individual seasons, but... 2007, especially. but Yeah, and yeah. 2000, I think it was 2010, the year he won the MVP, he had a great year, but... Um, you know they were the Patriots. The, those for a couple of those times, the Patriots weren't uh, the standout team in the NFL. Remember, in 0-1, they definitely weren't. In 04 they they had the they had to go on the road. So I think there's something to be said about um, the difference in what, what we the ultimate out the outcome of Peyton Manning in the regular season, and the outcome of Peyton Manning in the playoffs. It's just there's the gap between those two. It just stands out and. Maybe, you know, it, it is a team game. There is no bigger team game than the in the NFL than football. But I just think that it, it, it is a tiny blemish on this record.
1: Well, one last thing about Manning, we'll move on to the next thing, is I hope he gets a second ring. Because as I get further and further into accepting and realizing that Breeze probably isn't going to get a second one, I, I want that one that the Saints and Breeze did get to be as... I want other people to realize how great that was. And I think... Uh, if Manning gets a second one, and he's two and two in Super Bowls, and one of those losses was to the Saints, who not only beat Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl, but Brett Favre in the, a- in the NFC Championship game, and even Kurt Warner in the first round of the playoffs, uh, I really want. Uh, that's probably going to be the only one we win, so I want it to be to be great. And I feel bad for Manning. Uh, you know that first Broncos team. I mean, he has that game against Baltimore. One, if not for the worst safety play I've ever seen watching football. Uh, letting the guy get behind on the EDR touchdown there, uh, but uh, you know I, I think he's great and uh, it's a it's a great record and he's gonna have most of them. I mean, it's a reality. Uh, so people will have to. Uh, have the last to, thing
2: I'll say about Manning, yeah. is I, I, I've always looked at it in the last ten years as if you have a guy who you want, to, if you have a, if you have a game to win, you probably want Peyton Manning as your quarterback. But if you want, in today's NFL, but if you have a guy who you've got to get the two-minute drill, it's the end of the game, you're down by four points, you've got to get a touchdown, I'd still take Tom Brady. I think there's just the, the clutch factor. Brady just has that historically over Manning, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, that's when it comes down to crunch
1: time, that's what a quarterback is there for. Absolutely. I felt the, the, the deadly sting of a pretty miraculous uh, last second Brady drive last season.
2: Ah, it was at Kenbrell
1: Tompkins. That was Tompkins. Yes. Yes. Uh, Percy Harvin, I wanted to mention this second. Twitter is the way we find out stuff now, and I absolutely, on the toilet, uh, was scrolling Twitter, and all of a sudden all these tweets about Percy Harvin being traded to the Jets started popping up. And I was so surprised by that. Uh, and I guess I shouldn't have been now, in retrospect, looking back at this, as obviously things have come out. Uh, maybe he was coming out of games and not wanting to go back in. uh... Uh, salary cap implications and Russell Wilson's contract coming up and all these reasons maybe that the Seahawks wanted uh, to get rid of him. But uh, I want to get your take on on how you think the trade affects both teams. And also, I want to get your opinion on one thing I thought of when I realized Percy Hardman wasn't going to continue his season with the Seahawks who had just lost to St. Louis over the weekend and sitting at 3-3 three and, three and and having just went through with my favorite team – Seeing what it's like to try to get through that next season and repeat, who in the Saints' season ironically ended in in Seattle as a as a seven and nine home team hosting a eleven and five wild card team uh, that year. How hard it is! I remember thinking, like, I wonder, I wonder if the the Seahawks are really at a, a real crossroads right now as they get ready next year to have to pay their quarterback real money and then have to put a team around the, him then. Uh, but, so I guess three things I want you to react to. Uh, one, Harvin as a Jet, uh, the Seahawks without Harvin in the short term, and then maybe the long term, and, and what you've maybe thought about the Seahawks uh, post-trade, if anything.
2: Well, I thought as soon as – I wasn't terribly surprised. I, I mean, I didn't necessarily think that it would be the Jets, but I wasn't terribly surprised to hear that they had traded him, especially when I saw how much money he was making. And it's, I've, I've, I've seen a couple Seahawks games and how little I saw of Percy Harvin on the field in terms of an entire offensive game plan, I there were a lot of times I, I know he's made some huge runs this year, and he, you know people he had I think a really long run one game, and he's caught had some catching runs, but he, he he's not an every down player, um, and that's been you know he's had the concussions, and I think he's had the hip injury. There's a lot of physical baggage. Forget all the mental and emotional baggage that's been coming out now. I think Harvin is one of those explosive players who you know is you wow at when you see what he can do but in terms of reliability i just don't think he, he was he's not a guy that you put out on the field like antonio brown or jordy nelson or
1: one of those guys yeah they but may have overrated he, him a bit when they I, when they acquired him yeah,
2: yeah i mean he he got they, they got great production out of him when he was healthy but and
1: they got a super bowl so they'll, they'll, yeah, they'll, exactly. they'll be glad that they did it i guess ultimately cuz he was a huge part of winning that super bowl but I think that they may have overrated what they thought they were yeah. getting in terms of what they gave up for him—a first-round pick and more—and yeah. what they paid him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think. You
2: know, I, I remember I was I was gonna tweet this out, but I I just never got around to it. That I think that the trade of Percy Harvin to the Jets from the Seahawks to the Jets will have virtually no impact on either team. Uh, not to say that he's not going to play or he's not going to play well. I think the Saints are a playoff team. Without him, I think their whatever their playoff destiny was this year was right. not going to yeah. yeah, it was yeah. not going to uh, go in the tank because they traded Percy Harvin. It wasn't going to get better like the subtraction by addition or addition by subtraction, like people say. I don't think he was an integral part of that team. That team was going to win games. Russell Wilson is amazing. Yes. Um, he's becoming a better passer, and we've seen he's had you know he's done great running the ball. But if they're going to win playoff games and win that division and beat San Francisco or Arizona or wherever it is, it's going to be because their defense is great and that Marshawn Lynch runs all over the field. Um, so I don't think it's a tremendous impact getting rid of him for Seattle. And I think the Jets are a train wreck. So it's not going to turn a, what are they one in five or one in four Jets? One team. And six, I think
1: they are. Actually, yeah, yeah,
2: it's not going to turn them into a playoff contender. I don't think it's necessarily going to be the 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 saving grace for Geno Smith's ride in, in New York. I mean, he's a guy who you get him the football, he's gonna. There's a chance that he can go 80 yards with it, but he's not. I don't think he's a guy who that they can build an offense around. I don't think he's a guy who draws tremendous attention from a defensive coordinator. Um, yeah, you can say you have to account for him at every play. Yeah, but that you have to account for everybody on every play. Uh, I just don't. I don't think it's quite the monumental trade that it seemed when people in the news broke. Um, and as for Russell Wilson and, and the future of the, of the Seahawks, it's funny because you know, are they going to have to pay Russell Wilson a ton of money next year? Yes, but two years later he'll renegotiate, right. and they'll be able to afford whatever free agent they need to resign or, or bring in or whatever. So the, you know, the whole structure of the NFL cap system. And the salaries guys are making is so... It's such a, like, facade that you can't... Guys, if you want to re-sign your franchise quarterback, it will get done. And if he needs to take a pay cut later so that you can bring in the guy that you want to bring in, it will get done. I mean, it's just what happens. Eventually, this has got to change because it's so silly that you have these big contracts on the horizon and then there's renegotiation and then they have to cut... This team's $16 million over the cap next year. Well, what's going to happen? You think they're going to end up um, cutting their best player Their franchise quarterback No they, They'll work something out So I don't see yeah, on the arriving. Saints are
1: masters at that uh, well, I mean, Mickey Loomis and the Saints are great at that I mean,
2: they, they have to be Or they don't survive That's why all these capologists have jobs mm-hmm. Because There are guys There are all these inflated contracts That someone paid You know That plenty of teams are paying Like the Jets are going to be paying Percy Arvin If they keep him after next year That eventually it will have to come down If you want a job You're going to take a pay cut <laughs> Otherwise we're going to cut you I mean, it, it, these things work out. There's, there's no the guys aren't going to hold out. Guys aren't going to teams aren't going to be, you know, fine draft picks for uh, not getting under the cap. I just, I, I don't, I don't think that's a real major issue for the Seahawks going forward. They'll pay, and they're going to lose. I think they're going to end up losing Marshawn Lynch's contract next year anyway, so that'll save them some money. Right. Um, so I think I, I wouldn't really worry about the future of the Seahawks. They have uh, a lot of talent, a lot of young talent, and they have talent on defense and. I think that the, this trade is is not the uh, canary in the coal mine, like people seem to think it is.
1: One last thing about Harvin, and I always think of this. Uh, a good, I don't know if you know this, but a good friend of mine, when I was growing up, played football at Oklahoma. He actually backed up Jason Belzer for a few years there. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, an, I'm I'm an Oklahoma fan. I mean, I, it's not like being a Saints fan or whatever. I don't pout in my bedroom for six hours if the Sooners lose, but. I do usually watch their game every week and hope they win. And that 2009 National Championship game against Florida, that game was 14-7 to going into the fourth quarter. And Oklahoma scored almost right away in the fourth quarter. So that's a 14-14 game with about 10 minutes left. And uh, Oklahoma lost to Marco Murray in the Big 12 Championship game. He broke his kneecap on a kickoff return and didn't play in that game. The other questionable player going into that game was Harvin, who had, I think, an ankle injury, and he did play. He was absolutely the difference in that game. He scored a touchdown in the third quarter to put Florida up 14-7 to and made all kinds of plays late in the game uh, to keep Florida's offense on the field, extend drives, keep Sam Bradford and, and Jermaine Gresham and an awesome Sooners offense off the field. And uh, he's the reason they lost that game, Oklahoma, and Florida won it. It wasn't really anything Tim Tebow did or whatever. And uh, it wasn't like one of these times where Bob Stoops uh, brought an Oklahoma team into the BCS championship game and late. an egg. that was a really, really close, good game. Uh, and uh, not having Murray and them having uh, uh, Harvin was the difference. Uh, one last thing from last week that happened. All the Bills running backs died. Uh, Fred Fred Jackson, uh, I think it's an ankle injury or something like that. He says four-week injury. Oh, groin. That's right, groin injury. I remember seeing him now reach for it right away. Uh, he's going to be out a few weeks. He says he hopes to do it in three. They're telling him four, and C.J. Spiller probably had his last run as a Bill, and it was a good one. Uh, he bounced a run outside and was was going very far. Uh, it, was, it actually sort of reminded me of uh, when Adrian Peterson uh, broke his collarbone at Oklahoma. A little different body position, but um, as soon as he hit the ground and reached for his shoulder, I knew he, he broke his his collarbone. And he's probably not. He's in a contract year. I can't see him coming back to Buffalo. Yeah, I think they're bringing in Kenneth Davis and Carwell Garner to carry the ball. They're right? going to see if Thurman Thomas might play. He's the only guy that I know of that could do it without an ACL, which every time someone goes down with that injury, I think, well, why can't more players just play without one uh, like Thurman Thomas did? But what do you think of C.J. Spiller as a free agent in the offseason? I think he'll get tons of attention. Yeah.
2: Um, I, I, I don't know where that would be. You know, I think I saw the Dallas. There was talk of Dallas getting him last year. Um you know, with with Murray's contract being up, uh, you know the, the the running back position in the NFL right now is so it's so bizarre. The half lives are so short. I mean, uh, there there it seems like there's a no win situation when you're a, run, a young running back in the NFL. Um, I remember last year, just Eddie Lacey, I remember looking Eddie Lacey came in. He was overweight, and people were saying he was a bust because he couldn't get on the field right away. He he goes out and has a rookie like a, a great rookie year. He's not having a great year this year, and they're talking about that they overused him last year or whatever, and that he's just the wear and tear of the you know the pounding that he's taken. It's like there's no running back that you can co- go out there and say, I, you know, it was Adrian Peterson, and then he got himself in a little bit of trouble. Uh, I, there's just no one in the NFL that you can th- you say is a reliable ball carrier that you can expect 16 games, 320 carries out of like we you know Emmitt Smith did. So often in the 90s, um, yeah. I mean, Arian Foster, I think is – I actually think Arian Foster is, is probably the best running back in the NFL right now.
1: I like watching um, him run. He's, he's he glides there. I think he's just there. an
2: amazing running back. He's yeah. the, the power and the speed that he has, And even he, you know, he's had this hamstring injury. He's had the back surgery last uh, year. Yep. There's nobody out there that you can look at and expect a, a full season out of. And I'm sure you can say that about any position in the NFL because it's the NFL – the running back seems especially true, and Spillers is the perfect example. I mean, he's had some huge runs, but he can't stay healthy. Um, it's always something with him. But th- there's there's something about a guy who runs the way you know runs the forty in the time that he runs and has the size and has the uh, the, the the background or the pedigree, whatever you want to call, it, playing at, at a big school like Clemson, um, that's going to attract free agent attention. I, I, I someone will give him a huge one-year deal, probably much like you know Maurice Jones-Drew got a look, even though he's he's had a lot more wear and tear. Same and thing with No. Sean Moreno. They both had more wear and tear, but there's there's an appeal for the free agent bringing in the free agent running back. If you know, if you think the hole in our team is we're missing a, a guy to spell our current guy or a guy to complement our current guy or whatever, and I think that if Spiller is healthy, then he'll certainly get attention if you know it'll be a one-year deal kind of thing would be my guess but um yeah spiller's career has been it's, it's been so it's kind of sad to see what's happened because uh he was so highly you know he came out so high i think he was a ninth pick right um, yeah and had that great uh, year two seasons ago everybody knows that he has the talent yeah. it's just that he can't stay healthy and um you have to be creative kind of how a, you use him too yeah
1: you, but, you have yeah. to you have to he's not You know he's not going to run it straight in between the tackles every down. He's a different kind of guy. You got to get him in space. You got to be creative of how you use him. And you know this poor guy. His uh, I think his grandpa, who was more like his dad, was murdered in Florida last year in the the preseason. And he's just everything's gone wrong for the guy since it seems like. I just thought it was a it was always kind of a red flag to me. Uh, And this is nothing
2: against Fred Jackson because Fred Jackson, you know his story is great and he's he's obviously uh one of the the grinders in the NFL and he's had a lot of success but to me it seems so strange that I think was spiller the a, a rookie in, in 09 uh, I think that was the year they brought him in maybe it was 2010 and he could never fully unseat Fred Jackson who was this undrafted guy from a small college who they had brought in and had some you know some success but we're not talking about a guy who had a fifteen hundred yard season or anything like that. Right, it um, was
1: the ninth pick of the two thousand and ten draft.
2: Yeah, it's yes. su- it surprised me that he could never grab the 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 reins of the position in all in in Buffalo in in five seasons from a guy like Fred Jackson. It just it was a little surprising to me. You know, you figure that you you spend a high draft pick on a guy, you're going to do everything you can to get him the ball as often as you can, and
1: it didn't quite seem like that was ever the case in Buffalo. Well, speaking of. Drafts the 2011 draft, uh, the quarterback class of 2011 took another hit. As it seems like the Jake Locker era may be close to ending in Tennessee. It uh, wasn't how announced that Zach Mettenberger, who was a sixth round pick uh, from LSU, is going to start this Sunday. I think Locker has shown some some flashes, but he just can't seem to stay healthy. Uh, maybe a guy on a second team, maybe, uh, so, but just doesn't seem what's going to work out in Tennessee. He was the eighth pick in 2011. Blaine Gabbert was the tenth pick. J.J. Watt was the eleventh. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah. There was some miscalculation. The thing about the
2: the thing that I just remember about Gabbert was that the I think the the Jaguars traded up from 17 with Washington is what I remember, um, and so they traded up to sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. They yep. traded up to get Gabbert and. That was a, a a pretty disastrous. and I remember I remember doing a lot of pregame pre-draft stuff uh, around that draft, and there was a lot of people who thought Gabbert was going to be the first pick that year.
1: Um, or so Newton was first, yeah. yeah.
2: So you, you know, hey, it's total crap shoot drafting quarterback. So, uh, but I do remember the surprise that came out of the locker pick that year um, that did catch a lot of people off guard. But you know, but Mettenberger. You know, yes, he was a sixth round pick, but talking about a guy who was a huge, huge recruit, yeah, right. huge recruit at Georgia, had to leave Georgia for um, some problems. You know, played in the SEC at LSU, didn't set the world on fire at LSU, but you know that's you're playing a lot of good defenses in the SEC if you're at LSU. Um, and then the knee injury, you know, his draft stock. If he didn't have sort of all those hurdles, he could have been a first round draft pick uh, right. when he came out. So, you know, the fact that they want to get him on the field and see what they have in him doesn't surprise me. Um, and, you know, he's, he's definitely got a, a lot of confidence, which you could say what you want about, uh, you know, your quarterback. You want your quarterback to talk like Peyton Manning about, you know, we're going to work hard and we're going to oh shucks. stay in the. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you can say that all you want, uh, but you want a quarterback who has confidence and his confidence in himself and his confidence in his team. Uh, so we'll see, you know, we'll see maybe a little test balloon for the Johnny football era that'll start eventually in Cleveland to see how that kind of personality uh, bears out when it comes to leading a franchise. Um, it'll be interesting, you know, that Tennessee team that is, is lacking a lot of skill talent. Um, I know they have you know, Kendall Wright's a good player and they, they like
1: Sankey. Justin uh, Hunter. But
2: yeah, but I don't know. I mean, it's gonna be it's uphill climb for a guy like that. Hunt does know what he's doing, though. I mean, I I really think Wizenhunt's a very good offensive coach. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them get off to a good start. Now they're not getting. He's not gonna have a a great first crack at it with the Texans with the Texans defense. That's gonna maybe have Clowney back. I think. Uh, so that should be it. Should make for some interesting stats on Sunday.
1: Yeah, that was the other thing I had was uh, we're going to get to see the the first overall pick. It seems like this week, Clowney says he's ready to go, and uh, that's still a weird pick to me for some reason because I just don't know. I, I guess I was a little turned off by the way Clowney's season went last year, and and maybe that's silly of me to be that way. Uh, maybe that was an overblown thing, but. I just I feel like if you're if you're uh, the the last place team in the league and you look at your team and you say what's the best thing about our team and you say we have the best defensive end in the world I don't know that I want that team to then pick another defensive end uh, with the first pick I, I don't know
2: Yeah that's I mean that's always a uh, an interesting it's a good problem to have for sure uh, to have to choose any player you want but I, I see what you're saying. You know, the the other the other half of the coin, though, is, you know, if they're going to scheme against J.J. Watt, it's going to leave Clowney open and vice versa. Right. And, you know, you take the best player. There's some people who believe you take the best player um, no matter what. Although the no matter what is, is if you have Aaron Rodgers, you're not going to take a quarterback. So, you know, it, it's... I, I don't think... I think that last year's draft was not terribly deep. And I think that they saw Clowney and... They knew, you know, they, they saw the, the possibilities of having him lining up on the opposite side of J.J. Watt and what it could do. And it's too early to tell. I mean, obviously, because he's been hurt, but, you know, you got to give a guy some time to, to adapt. And um, I, I think it should be interesting to see. Because you remember, I remember what Justin Smith did, or Alvin Smith did with the 49ers his rookie year when they got him out on the field and he was able to basically be a pass rusher because um, they had, you know, Willis and Bowman and, and right. Justin Smith, and they basically said, go sack the quarterback, and he did. And, I mean, that's what they can do with Clowney, and I, I'm not sure the Texans are really in the playoff hunt, so it's a little bit different scenario. But it should be interesting to see um, with it, him being a freak, freakish athlete among freakish athletes. does seem to be a really enticing kind of thing to, to go out and watch.
1: They must have just not believed that, you know Blake Bortles or any of the other quarterbacks were the fran- were had the 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 capability to be a franchise guy. I think if, if Bortles had played it I mean nothing against
2: Rothbard or nothing against USC or UCF but I think if if Blake Bortles had played at USC or West Virginia or or Missouri or something he would have probably been the first overall pick. I think there was some leeriness about taking a central Florida quarterback especially when the the only other guy I can think of that they did that was
1: David Carr. That did not work out well for the Texans. Right. Uh, that's all I got for the football. Anything you want to uh, include? Mm, no. It's it's a good good slate of games
2: this week. Especially uh, most fans are going to get to watch four games on Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, because that
3: uh, game in London. Game. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that should
2: be. It's kind of we're not exactly farming out our greatest uh, football to To London these days, no, uh,
1: they could get an exciting game, maybe though.
2: This week too, because yeah. I mean, Megatron may not play, and the Falcons—that hurts. Yeah, I live down here in Atlanta. The Falcons are, are an absolute a mess. mess. Yeah, um, it. it was a better, it was a better uh, game on paper back in September, I think, than it is actually today.
1: Uh, the World Series, one to one, the Royals got a huge win last night. Uh, they needed that win. I think that if they don't get it, the series is not is has no chance to go back there, and you could still. Maybe make the argument that the Giants are in position to and obviously if they win three games at home it won 't go back uh, as uh as they 've done in the past. I think it was their second World series went that way uh, but it will be interesting to see you know it's so inter- it's so it 's so weird when you get you get a playoffs this is the way it 's been this year so we 've had all these great games, but we haven 't had any good series right it 's been all kinds of extra innings drama walk offs in series that ended up being you know, 3 nothing or 3-1 to in the DLS. Yeah, have we had a Game 7?
2: No, we haven't had a Game yeah, 5 so. or a
1: Game 7. And I don't think we, we didn't have a Game 6 either. Uh, now as the World Series has started, what we've had is a split but no close games. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. Now, I don't know what kind of a baseball fan you are. It doesn't seem like it's your number It's obviously not your number one sport. But I always ask Don this. Uh, because he's not—he's uh, he, his Twitter handle is at Don sports, and people joke with him on Twitter that it should be Don Lake's Two Sports, hockey and football. Uh, so I always ask him about events like this, and I'll ask you: uh, Have you watched the World Series at all yet? And if you haven't, uh, what will bring you to the set to see it?
2: I watched part of Game Two yesterday. I was really impressed with that, uh, Ventura, especially when they showed. Um his yeah, huge his work with uh, his work with Pedro was interesting, and the comparisons that were drawing with him. Um, I do not get to watch nearly as much baseball as I used to. Uh, that's kind of the nature of the beast, I guess. When you get older and you get married, and you your time on the, at the television set is kind of reduced. Um, but I, I, you know, to to the question you asked about what would bring me to the set, um, I think, like you said, you know, the, the, there's nothing like Game Seven, man. Um and there, they're, that I think if there had been a game seven that drew, drew me into see you know to, to sort of not necessarily root for the Royals or the or the Cardinals or the or the Giants or whoever it had been that would have been a big deal I think you know not to step too far back but baseball just doesn't have the same appeal that it did to, to me 15 years ago um, I, I don't want to say it's all because of the steroid scandal but when I look back and think about it, uh, I was really invested in, in, in Sosa and McGuire and then Bonds. Um, I remember I, I was a big Indians fan growing up, so I, that was around the time that the Indians were really um, killing it. and They had a lot of a good runs in the in the playoffs, and they were really exciting runs, too. Yeah,
1: 95, 97. 95,
2: 97 was yeah. actually more exciting. That was maybe the most exciting baseball team I'd ever really followed. They got to
1: Rivera and the, the San yeah, Diego run. Yep.
2: They had a lot going. They had a very... They had as jam-packed of a postseason as I think it really has ever been in baseball history. Um, I used—I grew up as a huge baseball fan. Uh, I'm a was a huge baseball historian. I could name every World Series winner for all the way up to 2004 or so. Um, but I, I think you know, there, there's just something about the appeal of today's game that sort of turned me off. Uh, I and I, I do think you know people are always saying. I remember they were saying this last year um, about uh, what it say Chris Davis, the the Orioles yeah. um, outfielder, or mm-hmm. first baseman. Um, the as soon as he started hitting home runs, when they were talking about steroids. Um, that's sort of just it's just a, a lingering scent on baseball right now. And I know people aren't talking about it right now, but that's just it, it's been that way for me. It, it, I haven't had that. Uh, moment has brought me back to the game yet i, I imagine there will be um, but there's nothing uh, terribly appealing appealing about the series this year other than you know San Francisco winning three world series in 5 years and when you're not named the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox to do that would be really remarkable and um you got to uh, you got to think that Bruce Bochy will sew up a, a spot in Cooperstown with something like that because and especially because they have Yes, they have Buster Posey and and Sandoval is a good player, and, but they haven't done it in a way that makes you think um, that makes you think of some of the classic teams, or like the Yankees and the Red Sox. I mean, the Red Sox had Manny and Poppy and Pedro; um, those are sort of the catch-all names. And the Yankees obviously had Jeter and Clemens, and even Posada and Tino Martinez and the core those, core. those names. Yeah, mm-hmm. those those and Rivera, of course, and those guys. Those names just sort of like stand out as, I, I would use the word icon. Um, but for the Giants, I, I mean, Lincecum hasn't been the, the linchpin of that team. He's uh, only he's pitched di- one inning all, all Yeah, and yeah. even in 2012, he wasn't the face of that franchise. More out of the
1: bullpen. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, so, and, and Bumgarner, you know, is, is awesome. And, and Matt Kane is, was hurt this year, but in 2012 and 2010, he was a big part of it. Um, but for them to do it with in a way that's, a lot of the sort of role players and the guys, you know, the team atmosphere is pretty remarkable. So if, they, if they're if they able to pull off three in five years.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully having a good series. There's been a lot of great games, like I said. I, w- I hope this one goes along. I hope it gets back to the K uh, for a game six and hopefully a game seven. Uh, I love baseball. I always will. I love the – the. it's almost hard to, to in any sport, to – uh, have as many moments of, of of drama the way baseball can produce them. Uh, so I'm excited. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention is uh, I, I still cannot believe that Fox did not hire John Smoltz and go with Smoltz and Buck. I love Buck. I know a lot of people don't, uh, and I think those people – Probably don't like him because of what he does on Sundays more than what he does with baseball. He's a great baseball play by play guy. I completely agree. He's
2: a great baseball baseball player.
1: He's he's unbelievable at it. I'm disappointed um, with with Harold Reynolds. It seems like Buck is too, which is interesting. Uh, And, you know, Tom Verducci. Eh, I don't know. It was a huge accomplishment for us to get him on the podcast twice because everyone at Sports Illustrated said, listen, you can reach out to anyone you want, but I promise you Verducci's never going to come on. He turns down Francesa and I got him twice. So we're proud of that. I, I think he'd be better on the field, uh, but he's been better than I thought. I just think they had the, a great opportunity. I think Schmoltz is really good at it. I think him and Buck would have been great. And I, I like the two man booth so much better than the three, Yeah, uh, but I've been a little disappointed with that. Uh, but, when this does end, we will get – we had Jeff passing on right before, so maybe we'll get uh, Jonah Carey or Ben Ryder or one of our baseball guys to come on uh, after that. Uh, I, last- loved, I loved HR when he was with, on Baseball Tonight. Yeah, he's a great studio guy. I thought he guy. was a
2: great studio guy. Yeah. I thought he really provided great insight. I felt – when I was watching it last night, I kind of felt like he was cramming in the analysis in between pitches which he didn't have to do on baseball tonight because it was sort of that was the show, you know. Yeah. Here's HR is going to talk about something stealing second base or something. But last night I was watching it. There was a, there was a play I remember. There was a, a short fly ball to center field that um, the, the Royal center fielder dove in, and he, he was he was so, he was really trying to cram in as much as he could possibly say before the next batter got up. And I think you know that's uh, it, it did sort of point out that maybe that he's a better studio guy than he is a play by play guy.
1: Last thing uh, for today, and then we'll move on with the show, I wanted to talk about is Slava uh a defenseman for the Los Angeles Kings, uh, was arrested for a domestic violence issue and was suspended with pay uh, immediately by the NHL. Now, he has yet to be charged uh, with a crime, and his lawyer says that he was only arrested because of the language barrier between, uh, and his, I think girlfriend. I don't think they're married. Uh, no, it's a girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. His girlfriend and the police, he says she wasn't hit, but then stops short of really saying what happened because all of a sudden, then he cites the investigation. It's like, you know, Voynyev's lawyer is like, uh, I can't talk about this, uh, but he didn't hit her, but I can't say anything else. It's like, you know, I can say what I I want you to hear, but I don't want to say anything else. Uh, but here's what I wanted, the reason I wanted to talk about this. I think it's a really, really interesting thing to monitor because a, a few things. One, I think the NHL is either going – This when this ends, this is either going to make the NHL look really good for being progressive and out ahead of things and taking a stand that the NFL wasn't willing to. And I'll tell you why I think I did that in a second. But – The other side of this is they're going to have a huge mess if he's not even charged at all with the crime because one thing the way the NHL works is every time you play a game, you're earning towards your pension. And it used to be 400 games uh, got you a fully vested pension. And now it's a little different if you play so many games in a year. You're given credit for the whole season. If you play a little less, it's 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 more complicated than the CBA that they just signed. But uh, what are they going to do if this drags out for two months? When uh, you have misses 15, 20 games, yeah, you paid them for them. But you're going to have to make a decision on what that means for his pension, uh, all kinds of things are going to to be brought up here. If you suspended a guy, uh, essentially, in the end, it will be for nothing. W- what it will turn out, what the story will be, will be the NHL suspended a guy because the police responded to something and got confused because they didn't speak Russian. All right, so that could happen. Now, I think the reason the NHL did this is because they're the first league up after the NFL's mess, right and the NHL doesn't have uh, the flexibility the league like the NFL does. they don't have the power, so they can't they can't risk take the risks of turning people off in a PR nightmare that the N- the NFL can and I think that that's uh, why they acted the way they did, and I'm worried as a fan of the NHL, as a fan of the league, I'm worried for them a little bit. In this, and I really wanted to get your opinion as sort of an outsider um, on what you think about the way the NHL responded to this.
2: Well, I, I think, I think the NFL had, um, I guess you would, if you want to cut it off at Ray Rice. Before Ray Rice, the NFL had problems when it came to its public image. Its public image in general. I mean, Goodell was never the most popular commissioner in sports, but. There was a lot of factors involved in in the Ray Rice before the Ray Rice situation happened. I think there were a lot of people looking at the NFL very a, a real scrutiny on the NFL when it came to issues like this, and not necessarily domestic violence, but I think everything involved in sort of um, safety and the law and and the, the lawsuits that were involved. And so I think the NFL. Probably didn't have the NHL didn't have that kind of baggage coming in, so I guess I would say I'm a little surprised that they would be so proactive in that. Not necessarily to say that um, they they jumped the gun or anything, but you they might. I, I guess they they very well might have. Sure, right. I I guess I would have expected less of an of a of a you know proactive move from a league that doesn't have. The PR nightmares that the NFL does when it comes to um, the, you know players being troublemakers and players getting arrested and everything th- that's involved with that. I don't know. I mean, uh, y- you do bring up an interesting point though, because I guess this would be the first test subject. Although the NFL's had a few, I think after Ray Rice, they almost had a few. everyone's yeah.
1: watching. You know, almost everyone's watching. Like, how is this going to play out? His first appearance in court isn't until December first. So he's presumably, unless, I guess, unless they just drop the charges, or, you know, I don't know exactly what could happen between now and then. But I think everyone's watching, and I think that what is going to need to happen really soon is each league and their players are going to need to collectively bargain some kind of process on what to do uh, when these things happen. Uh, Because, you know, if you wait for due process to play out, uh, and a video surfaces of like Ray Rice, that's a nightmare. And like I said, a nightmare that the NHL could, can't afford the way that maybe the NFL could. Uh, and it will just be really interesting to see. Now, Drew Dowdy, who's also a defenseman for the Los Angeles Kings, I think it was in 2012, uh, was arrested for a suspicion of sexual assault. And it was he was in charge, and it was actually proven that uh he was probably the victim of a potential extortion case. Um now I'd assume that if that happened tomorrow, uh the NHL would suspend Drew Dowdy, who's a huge, huge star in the league, maybe arguably the best player in the world right now. And they didn't
2: give discipline him at all when that happened? They in the didn't NFL? in
1: two thousand twelve. No, they let due process play out and then ultimately, you know, not mm-hmm. only was Doughty cleared, he was act- it was actually said that maybe he was the victim of mm-hmm. someone trying to take advantage of him. Uh, for their own gain uh, and i I was thinking about that today that case and I actually read up on it a little bit to make sure what I remembered was true about it, and I was just thinking, "Wow, if that happened tomorrow, you 'd assume that they would react to Doughty the way they did with Voynov, and wow, what a mess that would have been for them, yeah, you know if they took the the maybe the number one player in their league out uh for being arrested uh and again but not charged initially. Uh, no charges were ever brought on Dowdy, and he missed months of play uh, when he turned out to be the victim. So it's a real slippery slope, and I think that uh, all of the leagues right now are watching this and to see what happens with Vojnyov and how uh, this ends up uh, playing out for the NHL.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a fine line when you have to negotiate between you know, the law and the law of these leagues um because you do you do want to if you if you jump out ahead of it and you're wrong then you're really in trouble but i do think that i think the the whole ray rice situation compared to this it, it is different in the fact that that videotape for right or wrong you know it, it's it, when you hear domestic violence you should cringe just at the thought of hearing that someone was, you know, assaulted like that. But I think the video added this whole new dimension that really changed everything. And I think that when you have that extra card involved, it probably changed the game in terms of how leagues are going to have to deal with this. In terms, I mean, these are PR problems, if you think about it. Um, they're looking at it to protect their, their brand and their league. And if you have visual evidence versus an arrest report, that does, I think, sort of change things in the mind of the whole PR scheme.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. All right. Uh, That's three things. Kind of a long uh, first opening segment because Adam and I got to talking in the beginning there, but here's what we got going. We're going to take a break here. We're going to come back with Bob McKenzie from TSN, uh, the author of one of our book club books of the month. We're going to do a book club update after that. We're going to come back with Lee Jenkins, and then we're going to close with one last thing. Uh, It is the Sportscasters with Adam Lazarus filling in. Uh, He's the author of the book's Best of Rivals, a book about Steve Young and Joe Montana, Super Bowl Monday about Super Bowl twenty five and Chasing Greatness, uh, which is a golf book. Uh, you can visit his website, alazarus.com. You can follow him on Twitter at it's uh, a 57 I believe. Did I get that right? Yep. And uh, we'll hear more from Adam, who's going to tell us about his next product or project uh, at One Last Thing. So let's take a break and come back with Bob McKenzie. <music> Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario, and is a graduate of Ryerson University. He spent nine years as the editor-in-chief of the Hockey News, six years as a columnist for the Toronto Sun, and in 1986, he joined TSN, where he is the Adam Schefter of hockey in Canada. He is the author of a new book called Hockey Confidential, Inside Stories from People Inside the Game. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Bob McKenzie. How are you doing today, Mr. McKenzie? Mr. McKenzie. Excellent. How are you doing? Doing very good. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, honestly, we've wanted to have uh, wanted to talk to you for a long time. Uh, be, really, ever since I uh, I found out you had a son who played in the ECAC at St. Lawrence, I believe is is the correct school. Uh, That's correct. Yeah, I know that you got to live uh, the ECAC life as a parent, as I'm living the uh, ECAC life as a brother, as my brother uh, is a senior at Yale this year. So. I've always. Been. Oh, that's a,
0: that's a, that's a great, uh, It's a great, obviously a great school, it's a great hockey school too, and going to that building, the Whale at Yale, is one of my favorite college hockey experiences, it's unique architecture, it's uh, just a really cool place to watch a hockey game, and that was one of my favorite places.
1: Yeah, I mean, we got the, I got the countdown going on the phone right now to opening weekend in a couple of couple of weeks, which is actually uh, St. Lawrence Clarkson weekend up there, like it was last year for Banner Night, which is a really special weekend as well. Uh, I know you wrote about it a little bit in, in the last book, or a lot in the last book, and we're going to talk about the new book in a second, but what was the process like uh, for your son um, coming up through minor hockey and deciding to go the college route as opposed to major junior? And w- What was it about uh, deciding on St. Lawrence?
0: Well, I think, you know, well, I always like to say a lot of decisions get made for you, and, and the truth of the matter is while my son was drafted into the OHL by Saginaw, um, that was the first year the team had moved from North Bay to Saginaw, so it was really Saginaw's first draft, and he was like a seventh-round pick. He, he at that stage he he wasn't capable of playing in the OHL, to be quite honest. He'd be the first one to tell you that. And even as a as a seventeen-year-old, he wasn't. It was only as he started playing junior A hockey and started getting more physically mature that he maybe had a shot to play in the OHL. At that point, he'd already put in some time. In junior hockey in in junior a and um, he also was starting to get interest from schools so I I just left it up to him and I said you do whatever you want to do but um, I sense you're going to be a lot better hockey player at the age of 20 than you are at the age of 17 or 18 or even 19 and junior hockey only takes you through to 19 or 20 so I said I think you can play hockey a lot longer if you go to college for your particular situation. I mean, you're not John Tavares. You're not a, an elite level guy who would probably get the benefits of playing junior hockey right out of the gate as a 16 and a 17 year old leading up to your draft year. So that's, that's kind of where it went. And and in terms of the school and everything, I mean, you only had one offer, one division, one offer, and that was St. Lawrence. So, and that wasn't even a full scholarship. He, he had to pay for one year, and, and the rest, the other three, were scholarship years. But so it was a pretty easy, pretty easy decision that way.
1: Well, you know, it's a debate that we always have, either on the show with guests or on Twitter. I often am in debates with people, and it's the, you know, the the junior versus the college route, major junior versus the college route, and um, you know, it's it's a debate that is that evolves all the time, and it's a really interesting. A year with the probable first pick being a major junior player and the probable second pick being a, a college player and then a first round pick from last year uh, who made the decision to pass on BC to go the major junior route and that's the the elite level end we can make the debate there and then there's the mid-round debate and then there's the not drafted to potential free agent debate uh, and they're all different at each level for each player and and uh, sometimes, as, as we debate it with people, we kind of ultimately come to, well, it it's really depends on the individual player. It's an individual situation. But in a general sense, where do you stand on the debate uh, as it pertains to major junior versus college?
0: Well, I think you outlined it really well. I mean, it is really an individual thing. There's no one-size-fits-all for anybody. Junior hockey's great. Um, I covered junior hockey. That's how I got my start, covering the Sioux Greyhounds in the 78, 79, 80, 81 seasons. And my brother-in-law played junior hockey, and I've been up close and personal with junior hockey for a long time. And as I said, when it came time for my son to play, the circumstance that worked best for him was to go and play college hockey. And um, my my son now is coaching in major junior hockey with the Kitchener Rangers. So, you know, I I never get too hung up. I've never really... If you're a player, they're going to find you. They, you could be in Timbuktu. They don't care whether you're a college player, or a junior player, or, or whatever. Um, Jonathan Taves was going to be a player wherever Jonathan Taves went. Jack Eichel is going to be a player wherever Jack Eichel went. Um, same thing with Connor McDavid. So, um, but you know, if you are, I mean, if you're a really elite guy and you're 16 years older, in the case of Connor McDavid or John Tavares or Aaron Eckblad, 15 years old I mean you can't go play college hockey when you're 15 or 16 you can barely do it when you're 17 although guys like Noah Hannafin and others a fast track this year to do that um, and that so it becomes pretty obvious that if you're an elite level player who's 15 or 16 years old Major Junior represents your best option to prepare yourself to go to the National Hockey League
1: do you think that but, the, uh, I'm sorry do you think that the development so, program uh, has bridged that gap a little bit for United States kids <clears throat>
0: Yeah, maybe a little bit. Sure, um, th- you know it doesn't hurt. But um, again, I mean, if, if if you know if if it was my son, if I had a fifteen or a sixteen year old son who was elite, he'd be playing major junior hockey.
1: Yeah, I, I, it was an interesting case too with Eichel because I think a lot of people believe that he may have would have went the the junior route if it was the OHL, but maybe. Uh, because it was the Quebec League decided to to stick with BU, so that was an interesting.
0: We'll we'll we we'll, we'll never know that. Right. But I my my very strong opinion is that if Jack Eichel could have orchestrated his way to be in the Ontario Hockey League this year, he'd be going head to head with Connor McDavid.
1: Yeah, well, it's an interesting part in the current book. Uh, maybe my favorite uh, part of the book. You know, before I get too ahead of myself in that, we're always really interested in process on the show here, and we often talk with. Uh, with magazine writers primarily, who end up having a story that ultimately they decide to turn into a book. One that I can think of right off the top of my head is Lars Anderson uh, wrote an SI cover story about the tornado in Alabama, which he then decided to make a full book that was released this year, and and Lars was nice enough to be on to talk about both of those, and um, you kind of had it a different route where you decided to turn what maybe, if you took them out of the book, would have been really great magazine articles and make one book out of them. Can you tell me a little bit about the process in deter- deciding to, to write the book the way that you did and, and what went into that decision?
0: Well, I, I think you're right. Um, in and of themselves, each one of them could stand alone as long magazine pieces, although some of them are almost like mini books. So some of the stories are upwards of 15,000 words Advanced long. Advanced
1: stats, for sure, yeah.
0: Yeah, and the, the Yari Bursky chapter, the last chapter, right. is uh, I think is like close to 17,000 words on its own. So, um you, you know what? It's, it's funny. I guess there's two ways to answer the question, and one of them's kind of humorous and, and very practical. People say, "Why write a book?" Well, I, in, in the, the, the quickest answer I can give you is, my wife said, "We need a new kitchen at the cottage." <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, then in that case, I guess I'd better find a part-time job." And for me, a part-time job is writing a book." Um, like anybody else, you got a new kitchen cost a lot, so you got to pay for it. So that was the, sort of the initial motivation, and then obviously you've got to come up with, well, wh- what do I want to write about? And having written the first book, Hockey Dad, that was a, a really personal story that was sort of inside of me. I didn't have to interview anybody for it. I just had to sort of collate all the information, make sure I got my years of sequence right, and remember the stories and, and kind of, you know, just. Do an outline and then boom, sit in front of the type, sit in front of the computer, and it just flowed out of me, and it was it was great. It was easy to do. Um, writing books is hard; it's a laborious process. It's very time consuming, and doing this book was that much more time consuming because it wasn't it wasn't in me. I, I should back up a little bit too. When you're writing a book, you've got to love what you're writing about because it's such hard work and it's so labor intensive mm-hmm. that that if you don't then, then you're gonna hate every minute of it and you're gonna hate your life. And the job I've got is pretty much all consuming. I mean, it's, it's busy. I mean, you wake up early in the morning and you go to bed late at night and you basically work all the time. You're watching games, you're talking about games, you're talking to people. And, and that's like 24-7 for 10 months of the year. And that, so now, stupidly, I take on this book project and and I've got to squeeze it in somehow. But it can't just be duplicating what I do at work. I mean, if, if I had to just do a story on the behind the scenes of the 2013 NHL draft and I'm going to write 7,000 words about it, I don't want to do that. I was already at the 2013 NHL draft. I worked it. I'm done with that. And and I've got other stuff to do. It's too much like my regular job. So I had to find something that would interest me enough that when I, when I was, whatever little free time I had over the last year, I would feel good about sitting down and, and writing about it. And so um, I came up with a bunch of stories and that in many cases are people I know or friends of mine who I thought have interesting stories that haven't been told and that I could come at them from a different way that would be sort of behind-the-scenes insiders to live up to the, the title of the book, Hockey Confidential. So that's, that's kind of how it, how it went about. The very first chapter on an NHL executive who had a near-death experience.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, That
0: was probably the one story that I knew I wanted to tell, and if I could convince the person to tell it, then that might be the basis on which I could get a whole bunch of other stories and put together an anthology along those lines.
1: I kind of had this, this vision when I was first uh, thumbing through the book when it first came in the mail, and I, I was getting a sense for what it was. I kind of pictured you... Uh, sitting down at a table, sort of like a best man getting ready to write a best man speech, and and you have this list of all these potential stories you might want to tell, and you're you're thinking, oh, well, I don't know if I want to say that one in front of the parents of the groom, or I don't know if I have enough on that one, or was it something like that? Did you have this maybe bigger list of the eleven that you decided, and maybe through working on the book, there was a few that you didn't have the access, like you said with uh, with Colin Campbell, could I get him to tell that story? Were there others like that? Were there ones that just didn't go anywhere when you when you did do them. What, what was it like uh, deciding on the eleven specific ones you went with? Well, you're
0: right. In the initial plan, my, my initial vision was, okay, books got to be somewhere between books got to be somewhere between seventy five thousand and hundred thousand words. So I started thinking, okay, if I'm going to do an anthology like this, and I get a story, I'm thinking maybe let's go three thousand words a story. So I need, well, 20, 25, I need at least 25 stories, three to 4,000 words, and that'll get me to seventy-five to 100,000. So I made a list of 50 or 60 potential chapters, all different different stories, different people, tried to cover off a lot of different, uh, you know, players, coaches, managers, goalies, fighters, scorers, um, people don't know, famous people, people you've never heard of, and, and sort of t- to do a whole cross-section, and I kind of worked from that list, and as I said, there was probably as many as 50 or 60 on it at one point, but I never really started seriously pursuing those, and I, the, the ones, most of the ones that I ended up in the book, I identified as priorities, and I started going after them, and what I realized after I started interviewing them, transcribing the interviews... Sketching out a structure and sitting down to write was that these so a lot of these weren't going to just be three thousand or four thousand words that I felt like they could be longer, and I started kind of worrying a little bit, thinking, "Man, nobody wants to read seven thousand or ten thousand or twelve thousand or fifteen thousand words." Um, everybody in in media now is going shorter is better than longer, and and here I am, you know, buck the trend, and I'm going to write fifteen thousand words on a guy most people have never heard of and then, but I, you know, I kind of had confidence that, okay, been in the business a long time, these stories don't bore me, I find them interesting, and then I'd, I'd write one of the longer ones, and I would show it to some of my friends or family, and they would read it, and they'd say, that was awesome, and, and I'd go, okay, not too long, not too plodding, not too slow, no, really good, okay, good, then I got over that hump, and once I realized I was over that hump, then I thought it would be like 15, and then it ended up, I, I, I should have had 12 there was a, a 12th chapter and i didn't include it i never got around to to doing it for a variety of reasons and it ended up being 11 11's a weird number but my son mike always wore number 11 when he played hockey nice. so it works
1: i'm guessing you don't want to tell us what the 12th one you didn't do was
0: no i, I don't actually <laughs> it would probably involve somebody that nobody's it was another one of those ones that nobody's ever heard about but there's a a long and involved backstory to it, why I didn't
1: do it. Understand? understand. I was talking to my brother about the book and I was telling him about the way it was set up in the different chapters and his reaction was, well, I can't wait to read that one or I can't wait to read that one. And I think a lot of people maybe when they pick up the book, as, to, as opposed to reading it from cover to cover, they might say, you know what, I think today I really want to read the, the Tavares story or today I really want to read uh, the fancy stats or whatever. And for me, the first one I wanted to read when I opened it uh, was the Tragically Hip uh, story. Growing up. In Buffalo, right on the border, I've spent probably years—if you added up the days of my life, in my life—in southern Ontario, uh, be it for concerts, as I'm a big fan of uh, Canadian rock and roll, or be it hockey tournaments of my own or of my brothers or whatever. And uh, I was really excited. And one thing that was really interesting to me when I when I read it was there was one song I had no idea was about hockey, and that was "Heaven Is a Better Place Today," which is always. One of my favorites off in between evolution. And I always have thought about it when watching football games. When I see a, a guy make a, a clown of himself yeah. in the end zone, and I start you singing act that. Act like you've been there before. Yeah, I start singing that in my head, you know, while I'm, while I'm watching the guy uh, take the cell phone out of the, uh, the, the goalpost or something. I, I had no idea. And then there was another one that, and I wanted to ask you about this. There's a line in... Uh, from the In Violet Light album. The first single on that was uh, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken. And there's a line in there that he repeats a few times where he says, in the forget your skates dream, which I always thought was him thinking uh, in the dream where I forgot my hockey skates for the big game. Uh, and right. I and I wondered if you had mentioned that to him and he said, no, no, it's not about hockey at all. Or if you just didn't. No, you got,
0: you got, you got a better eye for hip music than I do. Uh, okay, that's just one basically... you didn't think of. I, I just went through their discography and I looked at the titles of the song and I looked at, you know, I, I'm pretty familiar with the hip. I've, I, I've, you know, they I, I remember when their their first EP CD came out with, you know, Small Town Bring The Last American Exit. Last American Exit.
1: Yeah. And
0: and when uh, when Up to Here came out, and then it was actually the first hip concert I ever went to would have been right before Road Apples came out, their third CD, although they called it their second CD because the first one was just called an EP. And um, I went to a show at the uh, the concert hall of the Masonic Temple at Young and Davenport in Toronto, and it was a hot, hot, hot August night. And I, I went to see the show, and um, one of my friends in, in Toronto radio hooked me up, for tickets, and the guys in the hip knew me because I was doing some work on television at the time and at the hockey news, and uh and that so they I had backstage passes to go back and meet the guys afterwards. So that was the first time I met Gord and all the guys in the band and kind of developed a friendship out of that. So that was kind of where it all started. And so I even asked Gord, I said, Is there any other songs besides these? Four? These are the four songs. That I've identified, you know, obviously Fifty Mission Cap fireworks,
1: right? Those um, are the obvious ones. For sure, heaven's a better place,
0: and, r- and right. lonely end to of the rink. And I said, "Is there any? Are there any other hip songs that I'm missing and that have a hockey theme or reference?" And he goes, "I don't think so. I don't know." Yeah, <laughs> I could be completely I thought,
1: wrong. It was just my and, I, and
0: I, I figured if if, if Gert Downey didn't know of any more than the four, then I guess I, I didn't either. But you might be right. I, I'll I, Next time I'm talking to Gord, I'll ask him about it.
1: Yeah, it's just my interpretation, which, you know, could be, uh, he could be talking about something completely different. And you said I had a better ear, but I'd say we're tied because I totally missed the boat on the Heaven is a Better Place Today thing. So I'd be at least one to one, and you might be winning one nothing. So I might be wrong. <laughs> but uh One thing we did on this podcast that was really cool, I want to share with you a a Tragically Hip story, is uh, Roy McGregor was on the podcast, who's a a legend for sure, uh, who's been so kind to us, and um, him being the, the expert on Tom Thompson, maybe the greatest living... Mine uh, yeah. for for Tom Thompson and me being a huge Three Pistols fan, we actually spent like ten minutes on the podcast once uh, with him explaining to me all of the different Tom Thompson references and what exactly they meant in Three Pistols. It was really fun. But yeah, yeah well, that's awesome. I guess that goes nowhere uh, to mention that at this it, yeah, <laughs> at this be, second.
0: Well then you should know that I I once asked Gord Downey about the song Three Pistols in the back in the nineties and, and that he didn't I went I kept on going to a lot of concerts and quite often they would never play that song. And Gord had told me once that singing Three Pistols was the most one of the most demanding songs for him to sing that that at you know, damaged his throat or or set him back more than any other song that he sang, so they they didn't often sing that in concert, which I found interesting.
1: Yeah, and, and I noticed they usually do put it towards the end when they do, like maybe the end of the set or in the encore, and that might be a good reason for that. Uh one other thing I, I got to ask you about that uh, Roy mentioned uh, separate. We, it was maybe that same time we were talking about his induction into the Hall of Fame when he went in with Rick Generat and also Pavel Bure that day. And I grew up a huge Bure fan and uh, asked about Bure. And one thing he said that really surprised me is he said, you know, in the 98 Olympics, Bure played the single greatest individual performance I've ever seen a hockey player play. And I thought for sure he meant the Finland game where Bure had the five goals. But he actually said it was the gold medal game uh, against against. Uh, the Czech Republic, where he had none in the one nothing loss to Hasek and, and Jager. And uh, he went on and explained that. And, it, and when I was preparing for this, I thought, I, I'd love to know uh, what Bob's answer to that question is. W- w- and it really wasn't even a question. He kind of uh, brought it up. But if I were to ask you the question, what was the single greatest individual performance of a hockey player in a game in all the games that you've seen? What might it be? Well, let's
0: see. Um, I'll tell you what. Wayne Gretzky, Game 7, 1993, conference final um, against the Leafs. Um, He calls that, you know, his his greatest, probably his single greatest performance. And that's saying something coming from Wayne Gretzky himself. And the fact that he was mad at me and motivated to do that because I'd written after Game 5 that he looked like he was skating with a piano on his back (laughs) and he hadn't been very good. And he got really incensed at that, and then of course, he got the overtime winner in game six so l a got the overtime winner in game six after Gretzky high stick Gilmore, and all the leaf fans are still upset at Carrie Fraser Absolutely. for not calling the, the high stick on uh, on ninety nine and uh, and that but that was that was pretty uh, that was pretty spectacular um,
1: yeah, I, heard in that, in that. I heard that game on the radio camping with my dad. It was, I think, Memorial Day weekend, probably, is what it must have been, given the timing. Uh, The Sportscasters are here with Bob McKenzie. He's at TSN Bob McKenzie. We're running out of time. Uh, We could do hours with him, obviously. Uh, His book is called Hockey Confidential, Inside Stories from People Inside the Game, and uh, it's available now. Uh, Amazon is a great place to get it. Obviously, bookstores and eBooks as well. And uh, one last thing I have to ask you about before I let you go, because he was here last night and put on a show And obviously the hockey season this year in Buffalo is going to be spent hoping and praying we can find a way uh, to to draft Connor McDavid. And the chapter about uh, the gifted players and the gifted player's exemption was super fascinating to me. It's always been a topic I've been fascinated ever since I first heard of Jason Spezza, who was the first player, uh, I guess, that I ever uh, realized was going to be great at an age so young somehow. I think... I don't remember if he had played in a Provincial League game against the, the Niagara-Cenics or Junior Sabres or whatever. If, if that was what it was, or where he was in the area or maybe just a tournament for his team. But I remember the buzz starting in the area and then following him in the OHL, etc. And uh, in writing that chapter, obviously a lot of the focus was on McDavid, who is the, the current guy. And um, I saw something last night in the last 10 years uh, after 10 games, and it's only 10 games. Uh, the, um, McDavid has the highest point per game total. Uh, in the OHL, you know, ahead of Jonathan Tavares and Sidney Crosby who would fall in that, in that time frame, and I think Steve Stamkos as well and, you know, other players. But um, I was talking to people about him last night, as obviously he was a big conversation here. And I said, you know, I, I would think that that number would slow a little bit as he's going to have to go to World Junior, and the senior season's going to be a grind and, and all that. But they have a great team. When you're when you're watching this season, when you're watching a guy like Connor McDavid, uh, who's obviously going to be the first pick, if not that, the second uh, at worst uh, but he'll be the first uh, what what is it you want to see from him like wh- what should we be watching for when we watch Conor McDavid if we're a fan of a bottom team in the league and, and that has aspirations or the possibility it's not like when Crosby or every team essentially had some level of chance to get him the way they did the lottery that year but uh, what are we looking for with a Conor McDavid this year what will you be watching for
0: well, I might look for different things than than other people. Um, I think most people see the obvious, and so do I. I mean, the, the dynamic speed—you know—to to go from a standing start and just blow people out of the water with your speed and blow by them. And he's getting stronger all the time. Those are the—you know—because I've, I've watched him now for a few years. I, I saw him play minor midget hockey uh, as an underage, I, and I've seen him in—I've seen him play games in each of his first three years in the league and in in the book in the book chapter for example he talks about his first year in Erie he says he felt like a little rat on the ice all the time because he was so physically mature compared to as a 15 year old compared to the 19 and 20 year olds that he was up against and he just felt so physically inferior and even though you could see there was ample skill and ability and vision and all that stuff still off the charts he just wasn't fast enough or strong enough to consistently do what he wanted to do, and and he was frustrated by that. And and then I saw him a year later in the second year, and I could you know you could see a marked difference in his in his strength and maturity. And then from last year to this year, he said he when I interviewed him at the beginning of the season, he said from the difference from his second year to his third year is far greater than even the difference from his first year to his second year, and he thought that was big. So I, I probably am I'm more looking at comparatively where he was a year ago and where he is now and where he might be a year from now, whereas somebody who's seen him for the first time might just look at him and rightly go, wow, he, you know, he's really fast and he's really skilled and, he's, you know, and he sees the ice better than everybody else. process processes the game on a whole other level than just about everybody else.
1: You know, the one thing that I'm really interested to see is, and it's a really unique opportunity he has, he gets to play his big World Junior year, that third year after Canada hasn't won a medal at all, which is so rare. And he's really going to have the weight of the country on his shoulders this year. There's going to be so much pressure. That tournament is so big in Canada, as obviously you know. Uh, And when he gets to World Junior this year, he's going to be on a record-setting pace in the OHL. You know, there's going to be so much buzz and he's going to have the weight of the country because every year it doesn't, no metal other than gold matters. But even this year, after two years without any metal, it's a really unique opportunity to see how at such a young age, he's going to be able to handle that pressure of the weight of the country on him, sort of.
0: Yeah, it's going to be insane is what it's going to be because, and you're absolutely right. I mean, put the pressure cooker lid on, lock it up and turn it on high because, everything about it it's it's his draft year you're right canada not only has canada not won a medal in the last four years sorry not only has canada not won a gold medal in the last four years they haven't won a medal at all a medal of any color in back-to-back years and that's never happened during the the entire length of the program of excellence that started in 1982 when canada won the world junior in rochester minnesota so there's certainly that element to it the fact that He's projected to be the number one guy and Jack Eichel is projected as the challenger for number one. And Eichel's an American and they're going to play and they play on New Year's Eve at four o'clock. Uh, and that's a good plug for our network. TSN will have that game at four p.m. Eastern time on December 31st at the Bell Center in Montreal and for the, and for the tournament to be played in Montreal and in Toronto. So you know, and certainly the the gold medal game will be at, at the ACC in Toronto. So you're you're putting all these storylines together of the World Juniors Canada's failure over the world last four years, um, the McDavid Eichel showdown for number one, uh, Canada U.S. on New Year's Eve, um, and just the pressure that goes with all that. So yeah, it'll be insane, and uh, and that, and I wonder how kids do that but that's that's what they do and that's why special players are special and and that and the, the flip side of it hey who, who knows what will happen and and maybe he's unsuccessful and you know and that's kind of why i wrote the chapter that i wrote about him it wasn't just that he's a great player and everything goes swimmingly um with these great exceptional players it's a roller coaster. It's it's up there. Everybody builds them up, 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 and then they fail to live up to expectations, and then everybody tears them down, tears them down, tears them down. And you even see that in the NHL with Sidney Crosby. I mean, Crosby's done so many great things and been so great. And after the playoffs last year, he and the he didn't play well against uh, he didn't play particularly well against the Columbus Blue Jackets in the first round. You you would have thought that he'd uh, he'd uh, you know, spit in your cornflakes right. um, the, for, for, for all that he didn't do. So, But that's that's the nature of the beast, and that's kind of what I was writing about in that chapter.
1: Well, again, it's at TSN Bob McKenzie on Twitter. You can join uh, 800,000 others who follow him. Uh, the book is Hockey Confidential, Inside Stories from People Inside the Game. It's available now uh, wherever you get books. Uh, like you he said, he's on TSN, which another time we'll have to talk about how that job has changed in the last year, if we get the opportunity, and you can also see him now on the NBC Sports Network, as he will be appearing. Is it on Wednesday nights that you appear on? T- uh, every Wednesday yeah. night, yeah. yeah rivalry every every yeah. Wednesday night, Rivalry Night. He's uh, now going to have a, a bigger profile in the United States, and we're thrilled about that. Here, uh, Mr. McKenzie, thank you so much for all the time. I'm sorry we took a few more minutes than we asked for when we got to talking That's okay. there, but uh, it was such an honor to have you on. Thank you so very much, and uh, hopefully, we can do it again sometime.
0: Awesome. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it, and do it anytime.
1: Alright, we got to thank Bob McKenzie for making his first appearance on the podcast. I really appreciate that. It was a great spot. Loved it. So glad to have him on. I hope we can get him a second time. Uh, really hockey royalty there in Bob McKenzie. I want to do a quick book club update, but I want to keep it short because uh, we have a lot going on. We did a long intro talking to Adam and doing three things, and show's going to get long. So I want to mention Fourth Down in Dunbar by David Dorsey, at David A. Dorsey on Twitter. A great book. I just finished it. Hope you're enjoying it and reading it. Uh, really some great stuff in there about Sammy Watkins that I really enjoyed and Deion Sanders and a couple other players. It's a really a great read, a really interesting look. Uh, sort of season four of The Wire-ish, uh, if I could uh, try to make a pop uh, culture comparison. Just a really great read, and we're going to have David in really soon to talk about it. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. Obviously, we just had Bob with Hockey Confidential, inside stories from people inside the game. Uh, Bob McKenzie, he's at McKenzie on Twitter. And uh, Christopher McDougall is the editor of the 2014 Best American Sports Writing Series. Uh, Hopefully, we'll get him in next week or or the week after real soon. He's definitely going to do it. It's just a matter of making time uh, with his schedule. Uh, So that's the book club update for this week, and we're going to take a break and come back with Lee Jenkins. Our next guest is from San Diego, California, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated and sportsillustrated.com, where he is a senior writer covering mostly basketball. Uh, Last summer, he broke the biggest sports story in the nation and is making his 19th appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Lee Jenkins. What's up, Lee? Hey, Steve. How are you? Good. How are you? It's been a bit. Uh, for someone, yeah. yeah, for someone who's been on 19 times, I think this has got to be the biggest uh, gap. I think I have April as the last time we talked. So that's a lot for us. I've missed you. You <laughs> too. <laughs> sorry about that. It's all right. I mean, I understand. You're out there, you know, just – I, I got to tell you. So I woke up uh, one day, or maybe I was already up. I don't remember. But I went to Twitter, and all I see is the name Lee Jenkins just all over my Twitter, and it it just brought me such pride. I, I mean, I was just telling everyone, like especially people who don't necessarily know uh, that much about basketball, or even if they did, you know that it just kind of the story of LeBron James went back to Cleveland just kind of drops off after that. You know, there's people who you know they just don't even realize who reported that, or you know, it's just that part gets lost. And I remember just like having so much fun explaining. Well, you know, this guy he's been on my show 18 times. He's really kind to me. He's such a nice guy. So. Oh, uh, thanks, man. Well, I know it's crazy, it was
3: a crazy day. But it was more—I mean, it was just it w- what was interesting about it to me is just you know how kind of everything that touches LeBron and everyone really, um, you know, things happen that are sort of I don't think would happen with any other athlete. So everything just becomes such a bigger deal um, than it would happen otherwise. And I, I think that, that was kind of I mean, that day. That's kind of the point that was underlined is. You know, who else in sports, you know, what else could kind of generate this sort of attention, um, you know, this much of an uproar. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's anyone like that right now um, or if there's really ever been anyone like that given kind of when he came, when his rise came. You know, being a prodigy sort of in this information age, proliferation of ESPN, Twitter, everything else, and the fact that he kind of sits at the crosshairs of all that. I just think he's uniquely positioned in sports. So, you know, when something like that happens, um, and obviously nothing to do with me, it's just anything that has his voice, a decision he makes, his um, rationale—it just sort of spreads in a way that I don't think it would for any other player.
1: You know, we talked right around that time a little bit, and you know, you were kind of telling me how, you know, it had just been so so crazy. Like it's almost like you were, like you were talking about LeBron and the scope of LeBron there. And you were kind of like involved in that for for a, for a brief period, or right. you know re- maybe you got a, like you said a really good perspective of what that means. Have things kind of calmed down now? like
3: is it kind of back to yeah, you know, one yeah, one yeah. One? I mean it was definitely a, a crazy week or so, but um, you know it was just a, it was just a moment and really it was none like it was just a lot like everything else I do, which is trying to you know set up interviews with players and um, you know sit down with them and, and and then tell a story. It was obviously a different. You know, a different kind of structure and much more attention. The stakes were sort of higher, Um, but in terms of, you know, what my job is, it wasn't. It actually wasn't that different um, than other times I've interviewed him. But no, now um, (laughs) it's. You know, trust me. I don't think. uh, I don't think most stories I do, or any story I do, ever. um, You know, even though there are ones I'll probably be more proud of, as far as you know, putting it together and the writing of it. You know, I I know that nothing I'll ever. Uh, you know, match the kind of attention that that came out of that. But again, that, that wasn't had nothing really to do with the work and everything to do with, right. you know, w- what the guy was going to do, you know, where he wanted to play basketball and just how many people care about that.
1: I have one more small question about this that I was thinking about. Yeah. And this is probably just an example of me overthinking something. But the feud that Michael Jordan and Sports Illustrated, and I don't even know feud is the right word for it, but. You know, there's, there's nah, a, you a long time, you know, there's this legendary kind of uh, Michael Jordan wouldn't be a part of Sports Illustrated and wouldn't talk. Right. He still won't. Right. Yeah. Do you think that that maybe that this the idea that a writer at Sports Illustrated covering basketball has a relationship uh, with the biggest star in the game? solid enough for him to confide this information and allow him to break that story is a big sense of pride for the magazine, is, uh, is maybe a, a chance for the magazine to, um, to say, you know, maybe in this era where we're not sure what print is and we're trying to redefine ourselves as uh, Chris Stone and John Wertham are working so hard to do, you know, look at though, we still are, you know, we still have the best relationship with the biggest
3: athlete. Yeah, I think there is, I think there was definitely pride um, that day that we were able to tell that story, but much like there was, you know, when Jason Collins came out and he did it the same way, or, or, or really, you know, really any kind of, I guess, get, you know, that's, it, it's not probably the most, um, you know, always the most journalistically satisfying or satisfying as a writer, but definitely, you know, the get is part of our business, and, you know, getting big-time athletes to sit down and open up and share something is, you know, it's a part of what we do. So no, I think there's definitely uh, there's definitely pride that comes with that. And as far as those relationships, I mean, you know, each one is individual, and I, and that there are consequences for decisions you make. So. You know, I know that we had a hard time for instance with with Kobe Bryant, given a relation- a decision that was made uh, they put his mugshot on the cover back after the Colorado situation in two thousand and four and you know he didn't like it, and he didn't talk to the magazine for a long time, and uh, you know I was one of the people who kind of tried to work on that and try to mend it um, and get to the point where I could sit down with him again just because some of these people are. You know, they're, they have such a lofty standing in the sports world, you sort of feel like you need to hear from them. You know, you want their voice in your, in your magazine. Um, so, I mean, the, but those consequences are there. And what we do with Jordan, you know, I think sometimes, you, know, you need to think about that too. You need to think, okay, you know, I'm trying to, you, you want to tell the story in the most fair and objective way that you can, um, but you also have to balance it with, you know the need to kind of foster some of those relationships, and that's where that's where journalism gets really tricky, especially in this in this age where um, you know truth is always the most important, but access is also important. It's a it,
1: it can be a tricky dance. I was telling you before we got on the air that I got the NBA preview issue in the mailbox today. And I love the Sports Illustrated preview issues, whether it's college football or football or basketball or baseball is always a great one, too. Uh, Yeah, I it's such a good job. Yeah, and I always am curious about kind of the process of what goes into putting these in. And the first thing for you, uh, going into this season, did you kind of know that your big feature in the preview issue sort of had to be a Cavs? Thing. Yeah, Did
3: you, it can be hard because you're not yeah. always picking the best story. Sometimes you're just picking, you know, the, the team that sort of demands the story. And and in this case, I don't know how you could not write. You know, for us, it was just it's very difficult to not write calves. I mean, given that that's who everybody's talking about, um, and and it's sometimes tough because you haven't seen anything of them. It's all sort of out there in the future, so there's not necessarily a, a storyline to chronicle. It's more about you know what they will be, and so what I tried to do with it is you know I have this kind of theory on them that you know we, we basically know what you're going you know you're going to get from LeBron pretty much, um, but Love and Irving. You know, even though they've had great careers, put up big numbers, I think that the ways they'll be affected by this experience, by LeBron's presence, um, it'll shape their careers and their lives in some unknown way. And so I I was sort of interested in that. I thought, well, maybe let's kind of look back at, you know, what LeBron has done for other players, his sort of evolution as a teammate. Because something you hear about a lot with him is that he makes guys better, uh, you know, he's a little different, Jordan and Kobe, that way. I mean, even though he does get his, uh, I think he's probably got more magic in him um, than those guys. And so, I mean, Magic Johnson in him. And so I kind of tried to explore that a bit um, just through almost like a conversation with former teammates that he's had and, you know, tracked down a bunch of them. But no, those, those stories are never, um, it's, it's always a little bit tricky because you're not always thinking about, you know, what is the best story. It's sometimes more about, you know, what team has been remade um and will really shift the NBA landscape. And you know, two years ago I did that story about the Lakers, same thing. I remember um you know the headline got me. Got me a lot of uh, blowback on Twitter. It was this is going to be fun. Obviously, it was not fun for the Lakers. It's been fun for everyone else. Um, and now I'll do it with the Cavs and see if the results are going to be any better. I, I have I have a feeling they will be.
1: Now behind the scenes, when you put together a preview issue like this for you, is it just all right, Lee? We need a feature. You you decide the feature is going to be the Cavs. And that's that's that for you. Or are you involved in any of the team previews, or or maybe the discussions uh, about how the preview magazine is going to look, or is it just simply? No, I mean a lot of that. We have a great new.
3: We have a great new NBA editor. Brad Weinstein is his name. He's, He's doing an incredible job, and I mean, really, this is you know, it's a testament to him and everything that he put together. All of the scouting reports, the ideas. I'm basically given one story or one you know, one big angle, and and, and I go and attack it. But it's it's Brad's vision that that it's more played out there, um, certainly, than it is mine.
1: Now, obviously, we know going into the season that the Cavs and everything the Cavs do is going to be dissected from every point. So we'll let other people do that, and you do a great job anyway in the magazine. Uh, But I always like to ask this question in some forms, especially when I'm talking to someone who's going to cover a league as sort of a beat writer and you're getting ready to start. Do you have sort of a a list of things that you want to see how they go? Like, what are you interested in as the season gets started besides the Cavs? What are some other storylines or teams or players that you're really interested in seeing develop in the first month or two?
3: Oh, well, I mean, there are a lot. And I think one of them is just that, you know, we're talking about the most, you know, one of the most hyped rookie classes ever. Okay, so you always are going to be curious about you know, which of those guys will emerge. You know, somebody will emerge. So far, it definitely looks like Jabari Parker, you know, from the preseason. He's going to make an impact. I think Andrew Wiggins is, you know, definitely intriguing. Um, and then I think there are going to be some people sort of from the bottom of that lottery. You know, someone's going to stand out. Um, you know, you think about, you know, who's going to be the next Suns? Who's going to be the team that kind of, you know, comes up and surprises a lot of people? I, I think that team could be Utah. I mean, that's the team I've got my... Ion collected a lot of young talent very quietly. They hired a bright young coach and Quinn Snyder. Um, so, you know, you think about things like that, about, you know, storyline. you don't really know. I mean, you never know what storylines are going to emerge. You just sort of, you know, you have to have a sense for, you know, you have to follow it and be nimble and be ready to, you know, kind of attack a good story when it, when it comes up. Um, but, no, I mean, I think there are a lot of them. I mean, you've got – you know, Dallas is a team that's been remade a little bit. I mean, whenever you think about the teams that are, you know, teams that have been remade, teams that are ready to take a leap, you know, stars who maybe there's an arc um, to something like with Rose, for instance. You know, if Rose comes back in a in, in a way that's reminiscent of his MVP season, or you know, Chicago's definitely a team of interest. They've got Paul Gasol. Uh, they draft drafted McDermott. Morodich is here now. Um, you know, that's a team that um, I think could very easily ch- will challenge Cleveland in the East. So, you know, you're, you're thinking that way as you go. And, and a lot of it, what I do is, you know, it's thinking about personalities, about guys who just make good stories, make fun stories. Um, that, that even kind of takes precedence to me sometimes over, you know, who's playing the best or what team looks good in December, January, when really, you know, I don't know if people are even care that much in the NBA about, you know, what team's hot in December or January. Being based in, in
1: Los Angeles, you have to be curious to to see what's going to happen in Staples Center this year. Obviously last year was a, a crazy year for, for the Clippers. I mean just uh you yeah. know, one of those things that you just could never predict would happen. Uh and um the magazine actually picks them to be the number one team in the Western Conference. So it's an opportunity for <laughs> them maybe to finally to get over the hump with uh with um with Blake Griffin. And then of course the Lakers who are Always going to be uh, front-page news. They're one of the premier sports franchises in the world. Uh, Again, they're maybe in a spot where the magazine predicts them 12th. Kobe Bryant's trying to come back from injury, obviously aging. The news comes out that Steve Nash isn't going to be a part of the team, which maybe opens up uh, the door for for Jeremy Lin to to try to recapture some of what he had in New York, the other big city. Uh, What are your thoughts uh, on the L.A. teams and what might happen in Staples this year?
3: Yeah, I mean there's just they're just two teams in you know, in totally different spots. Um, you know, I, I don't know if the Clippers are gonna win the West. That actually wasn't my that's not my pick. Right, I could see pick. it. I mean it it's definitely a it's definitely a process oriented league and you have to knock on the door And unless you kind of sign LeBron or sign a few big time guys and throw it all together quickly, you have to kind of beat down the door steadily. That's just just to me, it's different about the NBA than about baseball and the NFL. I mean, you kind of have to get there, take your lumps, fall in the conference finals. You know, then you sort of can break through. And the Clippers are getting there. I mean, they've been close now um, for a few years. And Blake Griffin really took you a know, major jump last year. Uh, they're at the point where they have two A-level stars with Griffin and Paul, um, you know, I'm not totally convinced or sold on what they have around those two guys and the supporting cast quite yet. Um, but definitely they're going to have stability now with their owner. I mean, their owner's a, a, definitely an interesting guy. I mean, Steve Ballmer, uh, is not, you know, he's not going to be some wallflower. I mean, it's just it's totally different, obviously, than Donald Sterling. Um, but they're still going to have an owner who's making headlines in different ways, um, Because he just has such a big personality. I was actually at a preseason game this week on Wednesday. They played the Suns. I was there, and you know he's the only voice you can hear uh, in in the lower bowl is Ballmer. screaming at the guys, defense, defense. I mean, you're talking a very you know you know huge presence in his own way. Maybe who will be sort of. I mean. Potentially. I, mean, I, you know, I don't know if he's going to get on officials in that way, okay. um, but there's definitely a uh, – you know, I, I don't know that he'll be a part of as much controversy as, as Cuban, but I do think the energy is, is similar. Um, and you just never know. I mean, you take these billionaires who've had success in one, feet, in one realm and they bring it to another. You, you don't necessarily know how they're going to act. Um, given that responsibility. So I think, I think that's interesting. I don't really think it's going to manifest itself in any way as far as the team on the court. I mean, this team is set. They're pretty much maxed out anyway. You know, I don't know just how much Steve Ballmer is going to actually change, be able to change the product. It's not like baseball where you can just go collect all the free agents. Um, so, you know, I feel like, I still feel like the Clippers are going to be, You know, they're going to be essentially what they were last year. Um, We'll have to see if they're sort of unburdened in some way without Sterling. But they're one of those teams that, you know, it's going to be dictated by the playoffs. Chris Paul's never been even to the conference finals in his career. Um, So I think the clock is sort of ticking for him to get that done. He had a terrible uh, conference semi last year against Oklahoma City, that, um, that meltdown of that pivotal game in Oklahoma City right at the end. Um, so I know that will burn him all the way through spring, um, and there are a bunch of teams, especially in the West, like that, where it's just gonna it's gonna depend on a couple swing games in the playoffs whether they've had a good season or or bad. And then on the other, on the dramatically other end of the spectrum is is the Lakers, and yeah. just you know I, we picked them 12th. I actually think they could finish lower than that. You know I think they're probably the second worst team um, in the West, and you know I mean they they're going to be an abysmal defensive team. I mean, one of the worst, Yeah, you know, they should be the worst defensive team in the league. Maybe Philly will be a little bit worse. Um, they'll score a bit and Kobe will do some, he'll do some Kobe things and there'll be some nostalgia there. Um, you know, He's looked okay in the preseason and, uh, you know, he obviously won't be as good as, as valuable as what they, as the contract they paid him. Um, but he'll bring some fans in and, And he'll give it his best shot. But in the end, I think this will be just a very maddening experience for him going through this, this rebuilding process. You know, a team that's young that really needs to commit to Julius Randle. And to be honest Steve, it's just in their best interest to tank. And they're in a weird situation. If they finish with a top five pick, they get to keep it. If they don't, it goes to Phoenix, Mm. and so they really need to be among the five worst teams in the NBA. I I think they're going to get there, uh, but especially being in the West. Um, But it's always sad to go into a season like that. Um, But that's just those are just the circumstances they're in, and I don't really believe it's Kobe's fault or any one person's fault. I think this is, you know, this is part of some some questionable decisions, but also the cycle of the NBA. It is very hard to stay on top forever, um, even even if you're in a market like L.A. And given the new CBA, how many older players they were depending on, how they basically, you know, disposed of draft picks to stay on top for a long time, it's kind of the cost of winning for as long as they did um, that you're going to now bottom out and try to come back again. And they are fully capable of coming back again in a couple summers. Everybody, you know, writing them off. Um, they get a couple of young players to entice some free agents. They will be back. Right. It's not too hard to, to entice a free agent to come to Los Angeles to play for the Lakers. I can't imagine. No, they just need to be kind of on right. par yeah. with everyone else. They can't be what they are now, which is basically nothing. I mean, they have they have no assets. They have no players of value, really. I mean, Randall. I guess would be the only player. I think that any other team would would actively want. Um, they need a few of those kind of guys. But once they get a few of them, um, and you can get another one by, by by tanking the season, then they get closer, and then they are a little bit more. They get to be, you know, get closer to par with everybody else. And once it's even, they're the kind of team that's capable of getting two big time guys in one summer or if you look ahead to two thousand sixteen when Kobe's off the books, even three major guys. They're just they're always going to be a factor in that way. I have one question about the draft
1: pick and I should know this anyway. If they do protect it, do they then have to forfeit the following year or a second round pick yes. instead? Or? Yes,
3: exactly. Oh. And then I think it becomes top three protected. So you know what's so in just... their best interest is to tank to tank a season, get the pick, and then you know, then become aggressive and and sign a player or two, and try to then, you know, make that pick not a top ten pick, not a lottery pick. Become decent in, in, in a season, uh, and I I think that's possible for them. Um, I mean, they're not going to be good next year either, but I think 2016 in many ways is the you know is the summer that they're that they're now pointing to because next summer does have some free agents, um, but 16 has. You know, they have the big one. It's Kevin Durant. Right. It's so weird to to talk about the Lakers like
1: that, you know. Did you uh did you happen to read any or all of uh, Jeff Perlman's Showtime?
3: Yeah, I have read part of it. Jeff, yeah, it's great. Jeff does such a good job yeah. And,
1: yeah. Yeah, I
3: like that a lot. Oh, I've been working on that it's on yeah. the nightstand right now, actually. Yeah.
1: Um they would love this. Uh I'm sure several of them download and listen to the show, but they would love that it's been twenty minutes and we haven't mentioned the Spurs yet. You know, have the you know, I have a you know, feeling that they would like that about this. Uh, I think it was more two seasons ago when they were in the finals, and we were a big narrative was all right. They got this one last shot here to maybe get another yeah. championship yeah, with this like score, a decade, right? <laughs> and then, of course, uh, last year they they did get it, and I haven't heard as much of that uh, this year. The the uh, you know uh, the they used everything they had last year. That we haven't heard that narrative as much, and. And uh, we were talking about the picks in the magazine, and it was Chris Mannix who made them and actually did pick them uh, to win the championship again. What are you expecting from the Spurs?
3: Yeah, and I'm expecting sort of the same thing. Um, you know, I think they'll be – there are three at the top of the West. The way I see it is, like, is the Spurs, the Thunder, and the Clippers. I actually think the Warriors, they're a team that could – they could, I think, edge into that upper echelon um, – I think the new coach there, Steve Kerr, is going to make a big difference. Um, and they just, you know, they have a lot of talent, and I don't know that it was all well-managed um, or perfectly managed by Mark Jackson, although they do have some injury concerns that could maybe keep them out of that. But, no, the Spurs are going to be right there. I mean, at some point, at some point, the age will catch up to them, unless it never does and, Duncan, and the guys just retire. You know, Duncan retires. Um, at some point, it'll catch up, but... You know, we've been saying that for so many years that it's probably smarter to bet that it won't catch up than it will. Um, You know, I don't think anybody wants to be burned with that again. Um, So I'm sure that Pop will rest those guys, and, you know, they'll capture one of those top three seeds. And, you know, if they can be healthy and have everybody fresh the way they were last year going into the playoffs, you know, they have have a system. And so many teams in the league are maybe – you know, have younger players, maybe even a little bit more talent, um, or talent in their prime, but they don't have a system to rely on the way the Spurs do, and the way they play is just—it's very difficult to defend. I mean, it's just very difficult to defend that many, that kind of crisp passing game. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think they have as good a shot as anybody um, to win it all again. It's just—it's just difficult. You know, it's difficult always to come back. Again, after you've just done it, I mean, they vanquished one of the most painful losses in sports history with the Ray Allen shot. They came back, they got it done, they broke up the big three in Miami. You know, it's it's going to be a hard thing probably to summon that kind of motivation again. But they're a very they're such a professional team that I don't even know how much those sort of emotional factors even mean with them because it just seems like they come out and they go to work and. They get it done again. So no, I think uh, I think picking them to win it all is is probably very safe. I didn't do it myself, but right, yes, yeah, um, it was, was maniacs. I'll get your pick the right at the call. end.
1: You know, I uh, I feel like I have a really good idea of what the West is. You know, I I feel like it's you know there's always going to be the Thunder and the Spurs there, and you know maybe this is the year the Clippers could break. You talked about the Mavs yeah. being rebuilt, and we all know how much uh, talent the Warriors have, which you just mentioned. And but then when we, when we think about the East. I mean, obviously it was a really bad league last year in terms of wins and losses uh, and records. Uh, and we know that the Cavaliers are going to be the biggest story in basketball. And then I think of the Bulls, and then I just don't even know where else to go. I mean, is, it, yeah. you know, is there anything well, else, right.
3: you know? No, I mean, that's right. I mean, okay. you got, I think Toronto, uh, you know, Toronto's good. And they got, they're got they basically back intact um, from what they were last year. You know, I don't know it's on the lead team, but, uh, you know, they're back. The, the Wizards. Um, you know, Bradley Beal's hurt right now. But when Bradley Beal's back, that's a really good backcourt um, with John Wall and, and, and Beal. Um, and, and they're, you know, I think, the, to me, the Hornets, Charlotte, is a team that could uh, break through and be a top-four seed. They have Lance Stevenson. They have a great coach and Steve Clifford. But, no, you're right. I mean, there just aren't that many teams in the East that you can look at and say they could win the championship, whereas the West – you know the war. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can see the Warriors winning the championship. You know, definitely the Clippers, the Thunder, the Spurs. I mean, there's just a there's a longer list of teams that could win the title. Whereas in the East, we can basically know. I mean, I, I guess it's possible that the Bulls and the and the Cavs won't meet in the Eastern Conference Finals, but odds are very high, barring injury, that that's the way it'll go. Especially now with the Pacers. You know, a complete non-factor. Paul George, you know, out with the broken leg. Stevenson's gone. They have no way of creating offense. Um, so there may be a surprise team in the East that that gets to the second round of the playoffs. Um, but as far as being a legitimate threat to win the championship, I feel like it only goes two teams deep.
1: Yeah, that's that's so that's crazy. Uh, and and then one of those teams is counting on Derrick Rose, obviously, to be at that level. Do we know? Are we sure?
3: Are we no. sure of what – no, we're not, right? No, we're no. not sure. I mean, yeah. he's had kind of – you know, there have been signs, there have been flashes through you know, through the summer with Team USA and the preseason that he's kind of back. But then there are also times it looks like he's really not back. And so I, I, I don't – you know, you don't know. And you don't know how he's going to hold up. I mean, there's going to be more around him. There will be less onus on him um, to create all that offense. He's got you know, two of the best passing big men in the game. Uh, with Noah and Gasol playing together, which can be really really fun to watch, um, but they still lack that wing scoring they 've got some shooting now um with, with McDermott, but they don't have that you know that wing Rose can kind of give the ball to and let him make a play for him um, you know The onus is still going to be on him to kind of initiate everything for them um, and and we really don't know we don't know how he hasn't looked cautious i mean he's looked at times like the old Derrick Rose, um, but the uncertainty surrounding him is going to be, you know, that's going to be a major storyline for the season, no doubt about it. Because really, you know, he needs to be back to that level for them to reasonably take out the Cavs. You know, if he's just, you know, if he's just kind of 75% of what he was, you know, I don't know how that, I just don't know how that matches up with Cleveland, you know, given given when you think about what LeBron did there with a really makeshift lineup back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, that era. You know, there wasn't a lot in Cleveland. He was winning a ton of games. Right. And LeBron then wasn't as sophisticated a player as he is now.
1: Yeah. I remember his performance in one of those games in the conference finals against the the Pistons. Was that was it? The game?
3: Detroit game yeah. the legendary game. Yeah. yeah it was
1: seven, unbelievable. Game I remember five, like watching you know? that in bed, like one of those kind of things and just thinking like we're never gonna
3: forget this game. Like this is just one of those nights or whatever, you know. Yeah, I feel like there are a couple games like that for him that'll live forever. That game, the three, and then the one in Boston. the The game six in Boston when he was it was in um, the year he won the first championship. So two thousand third, two thousand twelve. Um, you know what I'm talking about when they lost the game yes, five. Yeah, good job, good yep. effort game. Yep, they went up so. there and he could barely miss Th- that game and that game against Detroit. To me, are like. Uh, at this point, kind of the two, the two that stand above everything else. Uh, and then he has. The... I, may, I may be missing one. Well, I think um, there, I mean, he's had some good finals games. He had a great one against Indiana in the playoffs. But those two, I think, are, are probably at the top of the list for him.
1: One other thing that comes to mind, and maybe it's more of a moment than a game, but the big walk-off three that he hit. I want against say, Orlando. Is that against Orlando? Is that I know... crazy, like the
3: half court or whatever that, yep. the one at the top of the circle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, no, that is. But they lost the series, so It was sort series. of you know, gotcha. thought of yep. differently. I think. More of a moment. Um, yeah, it w- it was definitely it was definitely a crazy moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was a crazy, but but no, I think you know, in many ways, those those Cleveland teams are are regarded with mild. You know, I wrote this in the magazine this week. They're regarded with some mild disappointment. But I think that you know, uh, the kind of when you look back at the people who are on those teams, I think they made him into. You know, a better leader than he would have been, a better playmaker, uh, sort of somebody who sees the game in a different way. Those teams were loaded with veterans who were designed to to help him on his journey. And I think even though they didn't win a championship, they did do that. It's going to be hard as
1: someone from Buffalo to not want this to work out for Cleveland. I mean, it's just, I know... Going into this season, I'm just going to be saying, man, I hope that's working out for them because just as I got to think that you know, for the citizens, the the way that that, that hit them with the decision and him leaving and, and then watching him win and win and win down there and to get a to get a second chance on that and to have him come home, I, I want to see that work for them. You know, it, there's a there's a sort of a hockey. Okay, this is a. a it Patrick Kane is from Buffalo. Um, right. And, uh, you know, he just signed a, like an eight-year extension shortly after LeBron signed his deal. And in that period in between, he wasn't a free agent. I think he had one year left. You know, he would have been going into a contract year. And in that period in between when, Le- when LeBron went back and when he, before he signed his extension, there was this huge talk radio narrative of, could you imagine if maybe Patrick Kane will want to do this? You know, if maybe in a couple of years after the Sabres have a couple of real top picks and have a if, if he could come and be that last piece, but, uh, you know, that's obviously gone because the Blackhawks aren't going to let that happen. But uh, I hope this works out for Cleveland. Uh, he's at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. His story, All the Kings Men, is on uh, the cover. And you know,
3: yeah, you, go ahead. Steve, just one thing about yeah. that. I mean, you're you're right because it's really going to be the rare – Yeah, these super teams are generally despised, and this, I think, will be a different situation. People will, I think, people will really like the Cavs, and they'll want to see them do well just because of what you said. I think it has less to do with LeBron and Kevin Love and Irving than it does about the city, and that people will, you know, when it was in Miami, it just felt like you know people were resentful of it, Um, and I think it would be that way. I think it was that way with the when the Lakers were trying to do it. I think it would be that way in almost every market. Um, but Cleveland is just different, and I think people do want to see, you know, they want to see them succeed. And as far as the Kane comparison, I mean, just go there for a second. Yeah, is that you know a lot of players don't like playing at home. Uh, you know, it's something I get whenever I talk to guys. I mean, there are, it, it, it's only a few who really they really want that burden because there's a lot of distraction. It's just it's not that easy to play at home. There's just. It, it almost, I think, feels like you're you're doing twice the work or something. Um, the pressure of it, the obligations. But I think LeBron sort of missed that. I think he missed kind of that buzz in the crowd and the fact that it was, you know, every game was sort of a, a homecoming for him. It was just a different experience being in that arena in Cleveland. You're talking about somebody also who was, you know, very much raised by his community, you know, the family was just his mom, no siblings, right. his dad wasn't around. Um, so to him, I think that area uh, just has, there, there's just a deep connection there. And I, I think other players have connections to their home also. Um, but, you know, it's it's not always not always the same. And I think there are a lot of guys who'd actually prefer not to play home. That's why not to go home. Somebody asked me, like, do you think this will be a trend now? where Duran will want to go home and everybody else will want to go home. and I, I really don't. I I, I don't think it will be that way at all. Yeah, and you know, in the case of Kane, he
1: hasn't played hockey in Buffalo since he was 13 years old. You know, when he was four, a Bantam major, which is about 14, you know, he left to go play in Detroit. Uh, not necessarily because the hockey wasn't good enough here, and, and actually the ironic thing is the team he left uh, beat his Detroit team in, in the Nationals to win the Nationals that year. But he got the opportunity to live in, and I think it was Pat Verbeek, who was a, a, a Detroit NHL player who played at a high level for the Whalers and uh, got to live in his basement and maybe learn from him a little bit before he went to the OHL in London. But, you know, he hasn't been here. You know, there was already a lot of pressure on Patrick Kane as a 13 year old in Buffalo you know because so yeah i i get it and i and i heard a lot of the durant stuff with washington i think it is right is he from Washington? and i'm not saying that couldn't
3: happen i mean they've got a good core and everything but i and and i think Durant does have a connection to his home but i just don't think it's going to be something where you know just because lebron did it everybody's going to want to sign up for this i mean i know there are players who you know i've asked them before oh would you want to go to this place because it's where you're from and you know, and they basically say that's a strike against it. Right. <laughs> you know that they that they would prefer. You know, they love going home. They love going home in the off season. I think um, I get that. But that They don't really want that. Yeah, I think you I know, get it. In season, I get it too. Yeah. I mean, I totally get it.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, it's at si underscore Lee Jenkins on Twitter. Nineteen times, amazing. He's so good to us. Just give us a finals prediction, and we'll let you go.
3: You know, I have the I have the I pick the Thunder every year. I just it's like a I don't know why I, I pick him every year because I figure you know, at some point they're going to break through. I mean, it's, it's like the, these guys, every year they get, you know, either I guess you'd say closer to their prime or maybe deeper into their prime, but it's like they are there. They are old enough now. And Durant, I know he's going to be out the month with the foot fracture, but, I, you know, in a way I think that could help him because he won't play so many minutes. He's right. just been so ground down. It feels like the last two playoff runs. So, you know, I'm picking the Thunder. I'm, I always pick him when I'm always wrong. So take, him with it, take that with a, with a grain of salt, but um, you know I think the Cavs will, will be really good. I think they'll get there. Um, but again, it just feels like you know they may have to knock on that door again. And and it just you know at some point it's going to be Durant's time. I mean he's so clearly there's so clearly a one-two for best player in the league. And you know he's going to get it. It's just it depends on when. Um, and if he doesn't get it this year, or next year, I guess it depends on where because. You know, the the clock is ticking for Oklahoma City. The urgency is just different. Um, You know, he's going to be a free agent after next season, and I think winning after this year would really give them a lot more security and and, and feeling like he would return.
1: You know, that that whole idea of – of having to get knocked down in basketball to get up, I think it's so cool. And I thought that 30 for 30 documentary on the Pistons did a great job of showing it. They showed yeah. that, no doubt. Yeah, yeah they did a they great really job did. with that. With the, the Pistons needing to get through the Celtics and the Pistons, you know, holding the Bulls down for a while. Yeah, that's a really unique
3: basketball thing. And The only one that didn't happen, like the big three in Boston didn't have that, right? They, right. they just, they wanted their first year. So, I mean, it can not happen. Right. But very unusual. I mean, even the Heat, even this Heat team, They had to get. They had to go through the Dallas situation, and you know, and and, and lose to that. You know, what looked like, and still probably looks like, an inferior lineup. Um, So it is pretty. I think it's pretty typical. All right. Thanks so much, Lee. Appreciate it. Okay. Till time number
1: twenty next time. (laughs) All right. We'll have to do something special. Thanks, man. Bye. Take care. All right, I want to thank our guest today, Bob McKenzie from TSN in Canada. He's going to be on the U.S. TV this year on the NBC Sports Network on the Wednesday telecast. So look for Bob there and please pick up his book. Uh, Hopefully he will, in a week from now, say, Whew, being on the Sportscaster's really kicked up book sales. Uh, sort of the way Adam did a few years ago when he was promoting his book on here. I uh, also want to thank Lee Jenkins, uh, the all-time leader in appearances in the show. Uh, really, he's been a superhero for us uh, over the years. I want to thank him so much uh, for for coming on to preview the NBA season uh, with us because if I would have had to do it alone, uh, that wouldn't have went over good because I know very little about uh, Mr. Silver's NBA there. Uh don't forget you can find our shows on our website, wwwsports casterscom Uh last week's show, the puck daddy Greg Woshinsky previewed the NFL or the NHL season. Uh Jenny Verentes from the Monday morning QB uh was in to talk about her time in Buffalo and some other football things, and Dan Wilkin taught college football with us. Uh so thanks to them. You can find that show on our website uh in this one, wwwsports casters.com. You can also uh, find our shows on Stitcher and iTunes and all those places. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. If you wanted to uh, congratulate Don, he's at Don Lake Sports, And you can always email us to sportscasters at com. We're going to do one last thing in a second, but before we do that, two things. One, I mentioned Jenny uh, Vrentas from the Monday Morning Quarterback was on uh, the last podcast. Uh, another staffer from... Uh, the Monday Morning QB is Robert Klemko, who's been on a few times and has been great to us. Uh, I think he's really smart, uh good writer, and he was suspended. I saw Peter King tweeted today for four weeks uh, because of something that happened in Chicago. Uh, I didn't know anything about it, so I looked and apparently uh, he got in a fight with a, a taxi cab driver and ended up driving off with his cab. I, I don't know anything about it, but... Uh, Robert's been great to us as uh, a really, a uh, really talented writer. So I hope all that stuff uh, gets sort sorted out, and uh, Robert's able to be on the show uh, again and, and writing for everyone on the Monday Morning QB. But uh, oh, geez, it, it just sounds like a mess. Uh, well, that should be an interesting story to yeah. bring him on. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I, I I can't. You know, it's he had such an interesting year because he was uh, briefly arrested in Ferguson when he was there covering that mess for for the Time magazine portion of uh Time Inc who he works mm. for um and now this with the taxi and being suspended but it seems like Peter King's got his back right now but I guess I was reading that essentially the charges that might be fu- filed on him are like carjacking type charges cuz I guess you know what he's being accused of is essentially punching the taxi driver and then running off with this taxi so I I don't know uh it's uh, it's it's scary stuff. I'm sure for him, uh, and you know we always have these things that come up. Like uh, Don and I remember we're talking about the guys in Atlanta. You probably know about this, Adam. The guys in Atlanta who got fired for sort of making fun of Steve. Peterson. Oh yeah,
2: that was that was a big deal down here. Yeah,
1: yeah, I bet. And you know, as offended, and believe me, I'm someone who is very, very rarely offended. And offended might even not be the right word. But as upset as I was that those guys, uh took the opportunity to to poke fun at, at Steve Gleason who is the you know the author of one of the two either the greatest or second greatest play in Saints history depending on how you want to rank it uh who's had a terrible blow obviously since I still thought those guys should be able to work uh in the end you know I, I hated to see them uh lose their li- livelihood and we talked about Anthony Cumia and him being fired over the summer and you know I I don't know I just feel I just hope it works out for Robert because I like him and he's been good to us and I don't know what happened, obviously so I'm in a reserve judgment, but I hope it works out for him and uh hopefully whatever uh he may have done, hopefully he can uh he can um you know, he can he can make amends for it and, and go on to what is really a promising career. I mean he's a really talented guy, I think. But I don't know. Tell me a little bit about what what happened to those guys that got fired up there. Are they just gone now, or what's? I did? think one of them got another job.
2: I don't remember it was uh, exactly. I remember it was all over. I think it was all over Twitter, and I was like, "Joe, sure, I'm going to check that out." And then I I went and saw that it was two Atlanta guys, and it was a station that I don't I don't think I listened to that often, but um, it was a big deal, and I know they had to. There was a, a lot of public apologizing going on but i think one of them got another job relatively soon after that
1: yeah and then the other thing i wanted to say before we got into one last thing was i wanted to thank adam for being on the show and you're going to talk a little bit about what you're working on what you decide you're going to not going to yeah yeah um i'm doing another another book and it turns out it's another
2: pretty much 1980s nfl book uh 80s 90s and a book on the redskins of dynasty of the 90s of the 80s and 90s um, mostly, you know, it's mostly a football book, and uh, mostly about the players and, and some of the great personalities. It was a real interesting cast of characters that was on that team, that was on those teams. You know, um, the big, the big, the big personalities of the guys like John Riggins and Dexter Manley and um, Doug Williams and Joe Theismann were uh, really interesting. You know, I've, uh, during the process of the research that I've been doing, you know, I've found a lot of people I didn't really know much about. Uh, weren't necessarily standouts or didn't have the great long career of like the ho- some of the hogs, um, but uh, a lot of interesting characters. The eighties in the NFL, that time period, um, really fascinating to me. Uh, I think also the the intersection of the Redskins' success, which is uh, I know those two words haven't really gone well together in the last ten or fifteen years, um, with politics in DC of the time uh, provided, it made a really interesting, um, (laughs) mix of, of the, the golden era of Redskins football in the eighties. And a lot of people, the golden era of politics in Washington in the eighties. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting story and I started pursuing it and got a great publisher behind it. And, um, it comes out September next year, uh, still finishing it up and doing interviews. And, um, do you I
1: don't know. go ahead. Do you get to the nineties? Like does it yeah, end with the I think it's the sort of the, the, the Gibbs era, which is eighty one to ninety two. So you get to cover another Bills losing Super Bowl. So now you X, just have yeah. to if you write a Cowboys book, I guess Jeff Prohman or sort of already did it, but if you thought for some reason there was another you could you could write a book about every Bill's Super Bowl loss.
2: Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. yeah. I I could uh that, that, could, would, that probably be... would not make me very popular in Buffalo. No, but, maybe uh... not.
1: Don't worry, your appearances here have you <laughs> as a rock star in the city. Uh, <laughs> here's a few things I want uh, right away when you mention this topic I want to learn about. Obviously, uh, Dexter Manley uh, is something I'll be excited to read about what was going on with that With that guy there. I want to hear if you get into talking about how Mark Rippon not only won a Super Bowl, but was able to father an absolutely smoking hot daughter. Uh, who, I, I did not ask Mr. Rippon about his daughter. Oh, that's think, too no. bad. Do you know if you. Angela I, I know. It is? It's, hard, it's hard to Google Mark Rippon. Without Angela Rippon? Without
2: the, the daughter coming up. She uh, was
1: dating a, Se- uh, a Seattle Mariners pitcher, but that's no more. Oh, that's. Well, you're really on top of it. Um, I follow her on Instagram. Is that oh, weird? Okay. Or no, I, maybe it's Twitter. I don't know. One of those. Well, um, I followed her because I was so interested in her career as a quarterback in the women's football Understood. Understood. Right. Well, she had, she had good genes because yeah. Mark Griffin had
2: uh, a lot of success and was a very interesting character, and I will leave it at that.
1: Now, I can't wait to ask you, uh, to interview you about the book, but I will ask you, so far, has there been a guy uh, or a girl maybe that you really wanted to have time with that hasn't worked out yet?
2: Um... I, I'm going to stay positive because there's a few people that I haven't haven't gotten gotten yet, 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 but but I still have time. Um, so I'm going to, I'll, I'll plead the fifth on that. I'll I'll give you the answer next time we talk uh, when the book comes out in September.
1: Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to that. I'm sure you can uh, get updates on your Twitter, your website. Why don't you give all the stuff out that, uh, people who found love with your work on the show today. Uh, can track you on.
2: Well my Twitter is Lazarus L A Z A R U S A C A R U S A five seven. Uh, that's my Twitter account. And uh, my website is alazarus.com and uh, there's a lot of info there on my books and some other stuff that I've done, some of the stuff I've done for USA Today, um, some other places. Um, check it out there. But uh love to hear from people on Twitter. I'd like to get into the, the whole Twitter uh interactions, like to see the Interactions little flag with all the numbers next to it on my count. So, anybody who wants to hit me up, go right there.
1: All right, we're going to close today with one last thing and you can start us off. I was just, uh, you know, you, you
2: told me I could sort of talk about anything. I, I was thinking about what I'd seen in the news today in the NFL and I was caught by this quote unquote story of Brian Erlacher sort of, you know, sort of coming after Jay Cutler that he was an elite. He was paid like an elite quarterback, but not playing like an elite quarterback. And I've just been a little bit turned off the last couple of weeks to hear all these tales of former players or coaches going after their former players or teams. You know, I know that I remember when the uh, Steelers were playing the Texans, there was a lot of talk about how Heinz Ward and Bill Coward said the Steelers were softer. Something to that effect, and I know that Tim Tebow came out last week and said something about how Florida didn't have any leadership or anything. I'm just sort of bothered by these 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 accounts of people talking about their former team, which are no longer you know they're no longer a part of. They're in the media. It's their job to say something. It's your job to give insight into you know what a locker room's like, and you figure you know who's better to give. Insight into the Bears locker room than Brian Urlacher, who was there for ten years and uh, knew Jay Cutler and was a teammate of Jay Cutler. I just don't think that I can look at those kind of stories and find anything, give it any value, whether or not they're they're, they're going negative with it and saying you know Jay Cutler's being played like an elite quarterback and not playing like one, or whether or not they're they're giving you the 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 you know the over. The, the the fawning about how he's a great leader. You know, I was in the locker room with him. He's a great leader. I just don't think that we should put much stock into these guys who give these accounts, you know, sort of telling his tales out of school because, you know, all you ever hear about is keep it in the locker room, keep it in-house. The and then as soon as these guys leave the house, they want to tell everybody about it. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's nothing new. I mean, like I said with this stuff, of the, this book I'm doing, just a year or two after Joe Theismann retired, he came out with a essentially a tell-all, it caught a lot of attention about um, about players and the coaches and it got a lot of negative publicity and there was some angst over it when it first came out it's just it's i don't think we should uh quite find the things that former players or former coaches say about current players or current franchises or current owners who they played for and and put that much stock in it as as if we're supposed to be surprised or supposed to be Intrigued? It it just it I don't put a lot of weight in. I don't know how you feel, how you how you would feel if you heard, you know. I I guess it's a different case of the guy like Jim Kelly or maybe someone who's really tied into the franchise. But even then, those guys aren't in the locker room. You know, Jim Kelly talking about EJ Manuel or something is is kind of a strange way to look at it when he's not a part of that locker room or, or if it's whoever. You know, even. You wouldn't want to hear Brett Favre talking about what's going on in the Packers locker room. Oh, um, right, with Aaron Rodgers, yeah. yeah, it's just it's just a strange way for these guys to get back into the story. And I think I don't know how much of it is they they're in the media and they wanna um, they wanna they're make waves. Yeah. yeah, they want you know their editor or their pro, their producer saying they say something that gets attention, gets people talking about you. Um, or if it's they you know want to take a cheap shot at someone. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the case. And it's probably Urlach a little bit of all of that. Yeah, you know, it could be anything. Yeah. I, I don't know what's to be gained. Like, What is to be gained from Erlocker um, from saying that or Cowher saying that? Is it just uh, I have the insight and I'm going to give it to you? It's a speculation? I just don't know why these stories keep coming up over and over again because next week you will hear that, I don't know, whoever it is that uh, – um, Jeff George doesn't like what Andrew Luck's doing in the
1: in Indianapolis or something right.
2: like that. You know, yeah. I, I just I just find uh, I I don't really
1: Billy much Joe value. To- Billy Joe Tolliver thinks that Drew Brees is trying too hard uh, this year. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know
2: what what would, what, what do you think about it? how does that apply to your to, to hockey? Would well, it was does anybody care what Wayne Gretzky would say about
1: the LA Kings now? Well, it's interesting that you brought up Jim Kelly actually because that happens every year here. I know, that's you why know, I thought about Jim it. Jim Kelly I is, he said something about E.J. Manuel
2: before the season started.
1: Yeah, Jim Kelly is so uh, entrenched in this community, which we always laugh about, because he, he actually played two years in the USFL. He didn't want to come here so badly, and he's never left once he got here. Uh, but, um, you, you know, every year, it's, it's, uh, people want to know what Jim thinks, and I think, to some degree, that's a reason why they've had such a hard time replacing him. You know, in that case, it's almost like he's not. You really need to remove him to be able to let the new guy be. You know, to establish himself. Like Jim Kelly's opinion being in the public hurts the public's opinion on whoever the guy he's talking about. Whether whether it's Manuel or whether it's Rob Johnson or yeah, you know, it's. But well, I think we're. I mean, is
2: just as much to blame for. I mean, I, I don't want to necessarily. It's one thing if a reporter asks Jim Kelly. I think it's another thing when well, and that's these other guys time. are in the media and they're doing it. Um, like Keyshawn Johnson, I remember, was always talking about Bill Parcells, usually in a positive way. But yeah, I remember w- there was a time when um, the, the Bucks were thinking about bringing Parcells in to, head, to be their head coach or something. And he had said something like, the guy who's taking this job next year is not going to stand for this. And uh, it's just, it's just a, a weird dynamic to have these yeah. guys not be partisan anymore, but be partisan.
1: It it's weird because I think that you know there's a, a few interesting things like one we always criticize we I say that as a real general term uh, often John Gruden is often criticized for not being critical enough mm-hmm. and the thought is that you know initially he didn't want to be critical of the of the players he coached and now there's a thought that well maybe he doesn't want to be critical because he doesn't want to end up in a locker room with that guy in a year if he goes back to coaching. Uh and then there's also this this other thing where like if, if a guy moves uh to to from from the field to the, to the to the media and you ask them about uh let's say with the Ray Rice issue, right? And uh, let's say Ian Rappaport has a has a, a a report about the story. Well, the players in the locker room said this or a source said this, a sort of an unnamed thing and then Ray Rice comes on t- or uh, Ray Lewis comes on TV and says, "Well, this is what I know." It's almost like he has this added initial credibility because he he was he was in that position. He was he was in that locker room, but uh what I would say about that sort of like you did is well, we never really know how honest they're being because like uh with Ray Rice, well, maybe that's his boy, so he's going to defend him, or maybe they didn't get along, so he he's anxious to to put the dirt the dirt on him when he can. So I, I kind of agree with you that I think that you have to be really, really careful at how much, how much you're going to give to these reports because uh, you don't know the motivation for them. And that's not the case when just an Adam or an Ian Rappaport or an Adam Schefter is giving, you know, where we, we kind of respect them as a neutral observer of the game and, and believe that the reports are, uh, don't have any uh, agenda to them. So,
2: See, yeah. No, I think, I'm just going to, that's why, uh, I listen to less and less pregame shows than I used to. I know that for a fact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, one last thing for the show today. Uh, I, I picked this one out because I thought it would be a good chance for Adam and I to talk a little bit about wrestling. Uh, the, <laughs> this weekend, the WWE will have a pay-per-view, the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view. And for the first time in I don't know how long, not only is there not a WWE championship match, the WWE champion isn't booked for the card at all. Uh, And it's a really interesting thing with Brock Lesnar as the champion. Uh, Brock Lesnar right now is on a pay-per-appearance deal with the WWE. So every time the WWE decides they want to have Brock Lesnar on, they call him up and say, All right, Brock, we're going to use uh, use you tonight, and that means they have to commit whatever agreed-upon amount it is to have Brock at that show. Uh, the rumors right now is that Brock Lesnar is not going to be on again until the Royal Rumble, which is in January. Uh, he was last on, obviously, when he uh, lost to John Cena uh, by disqualification at the last pay-per-view, uh, the, the Night of Champions. So I, I just find it shocking that the WWE is going to try to run their promotion from now until January without their champion uh it's it's crazy uh I know it's a fake sport, and the f- the fact that fake sports have rules rules that essentially they make so they can break them uh is is silly, but they actually have a rule uh they've had it as long as I've been a fan, which is since I was born pretty much that it's to hold a belt you need to defend it every thirty days, and they just use that rule to take the belt away from Daniel Bryan after he was injured after WrestleMania. And now they're going to try to hope that we either forgot that or are willing to ignore it in the case of Brock Lesnar because they just desperately want to get to January uh, and hopefully get guys like uh, Daniel Bryan and Roman Reigns and uh, whoever else back into the fold uh, as they build towards WrestleMania 31. Uh, But I can't believe that they're going to try and run their promotion on a pay-per-view, which is a different term now with the network as... You know, if you have the network, you don't actually have to pay to view the pay-per-view. Uh, but there are people out there who still are, are are buying it on cable outlets. It's no longer carried by uh, DirecTV or Dish Network. They dropped it, but I believe cable still offers it. And in other countries where the network doesn't exist, uh, certainly they're buying the pay-per-views. But I think it's crazy. I don't think they should do it. I think they're taking a big risk as a company that's now publicly traded and answers to stockholders. Uh, they're going to have a big reveal on October 30th uh subscriber reveal where they're at. If it's a number any lower than a million, they're in big trouble. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. But, uh, you know, I can't believe they're going to attempt to do this without the champion. Any thoughts on that, Adam?
2: Uh, I, I, if you were, as soon as you said WrestleMania 31, kind of blanked out because I haven't, uh, while I love wrestling, again, of the 80s and 90s, I have not participated in any wrestling pretty much since they were the WWF. Uh, so I was the you, same
1: way until until March, and then, you kind of lost me there. But
2: you know, I I, I that does sound problematic to have uh, uh, WrestleMania without Hulk Hogan or the Warrior or, or yeah, someone. Yeah, could you imagine uh, yeah.
1: WrestleMania five without Hulk Hogan booked at all? I think was that now was that the Silver Dome? No, that was three. Okay, so where was five? Five was uh, the second one at uh, in Atlantic City, which was the Mega Powers exploding. Hogan versus Savage. Savage coming in as a champion. Okay, uh, yeah, that would not have... That wouldn't have
2: been his success. No, you yes. still would have had a tag team championship and, and the intercontinental championship. Right,
1: WrestleMania like- five, we had the intercontinental title match of the Ultimate Warrior, who ultimately lost that belt to Ravishing Rick Rude when Bobby Heenan tripped the Warrior and held his foot down so that uh, Rude could get the pin. And then we had Demolition retain their titles, uh, beating the Powers of Pain, and Mr. Fuji, who had uh, turned on Demolition at Survivor Series. Um, and he actually wrestled in the match. I never really got to
2: see anything other than the Saturday morning stuff.
1: Yeah. So,
2: I think you, it was, pay, was it SummerSlam was pay-per-view, yeah, right? WrestleMania. WrestleMania SummerSlam. was pay-per-view. They
1: had th- around three then. They had Royal Rumble, Survivor yeah, Series. Yeah, Royal Rumble. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, my parents wouldn't, wouldn't shell out the,
2: the, the dough for that. Uh, so it was usually a Saturday. Mo- was it Saturday morning? Yep. I think it was Saturday superstars. Morning. Yeah. WWE yep, Superstars. Yeah. Saturday morning.
1: A little bit of Mean Gene. Did you watch Primetime wrestling on USA Network on Mondays? No. Oh, so now was that, that was that like WCW? No, that was WWF. Was it? Oh no, yeah. no. I didn't. No, I didn't see. We didn't have
2: cable growing up. Oh. God. Yeah. So it was. I think. Uh, no, I was a big Bar- Brutus the Barber Beefcake fan. Yeah. That's well, why I watched that show that he had.
1: Yeah, Brutus I, the Barber Beefcake was supposed to. Defeat the Honky Tonk Man at WrestleMania Four, I think, for the uh, for the Intercontinental Championship, but got in a boat accident. Oh, wait, that was a SummerSlam that he was going to beat uh, beat Honky Tonk Man for the Intercontinental Title, but he got in a boat accident. So they wrote him off uh, through uh, Ron Bass uh, ripping his face with the Spurs. And I remember that. And they yes. put X's on the screen. Uh, that was how they censored it. And uh, then at SummerSlam instead, as a curveball, they uh, had the warrior or the Honky talk man go in the ring and say, I challenge anyone. And it was the Ultimate Warriors music who played and came and took the belt. You know, what's amazing is uh, my wife actually, who
2: obviously couldn't care less about wrestling, is a big fan of that WWE Girls, you know. Yeah, Total episode. Divas, my wife so loves she, it too. So sometimes I'll walk in the room and my wife will be watching like wrestling. And I, I, and I just like it, it's very hard for me to understand because it's I mean, it's not really about wrestling, but it's about those women. And it's, it's kind of like a strange flashback for me, uh, especially since I guess who, who would the only lady wrestlers they had back then would have been like Moolah Soliz-
1: Richter. I don't even remember. I, yeah, it wasn't a big, uh, big part of the promotion when when you were a fan.
2: No, it wasn't. Yeah.
1: Now, are you, if your when you when your sons are five, six, seven, if they decide they want to be wrestling fans, could you see yourself getting into it with them? And, if they want to be wrestling fans, yeah, would you would you take oh yeah, I shows take them to
2: and Georgia Dome or something? Yeah,
1: sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, now, if they wanted to be wrestlers, that would be a
2: like those kind of wrestlers. That would be another issue.
1: Right. Well, you got some time to worry about that, but uh, you know, for me, I was I was out for a good ten or eleven years. I was still sort of in where. You know, I loved reading the books and I loved watching the documentaries they made. Uh, but I wasn't watching their week-to-week programming. And then when the network came out, you know, I was like, I want to try this, uh, see what the network's like. I think it's going to have a lot of con- old content that I'm going to love watching, which it does. Like it has. Oh, it all, does. That's it has cool. All the Saturday Night's main events, and it, it even has like old house shows that were on like MSG uh, and uh, you know regional cable networks. It has stuff like that. And so I watched, and then we did a book uh, with – Grantland has a full-time WWE writer named David mm-hmm. Shoemaker who wrote a great book. And he was on the show, and we got a good response when he was on. And since so it kind of dragged me back in, and, and also my wife with the, with the Total Diva show. And now you can watch. You can be – you know, I, I never got into UFC because I said I don't want to invest in a sport where I have to shut off 50 bucks every month to get paid off. Well, that was always a big reason why I didn't go back to wrestling, but now that's gone because for nine ninety nine a month – you know you get everything and the pay-per-views. views mm-hmm. And uh I said, you know, I've always said that the one bad thing about getting back into it and being a little bit of a mark now is that I don't have a little son to watch with me. Uh but maybe that'll change, you know, we'll see, but um yeah. That's an interesting question. I don't know. I remember I remember watching it with my brother and my dad
2: coming in and and being, you know, this this fake turn this off. Uh so I I guess I would probably I would probably indulge them if they watched it and, and get all ramped up about it. and But then probably that could only carry on for so long, I would think.
1: Uh, what was the – I thought I was trying to tell you to watch one of the documentaries. Maybe it was the Piper one. Did you say you were a big Piper fan? Oh, I was a huge Piper fan, yeah. Yeah, he's got a great – He's the only one I follow on Twitter. I still follow him on Twitter. He has part a of, podcast too. You should oh, should Part of that is yeah.
2: because They Live is such a great movie. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's really but, uh, good. Uh yeah, I was big. I had I was a big Piper fan. I had two little like action figures. One was a Piper action figure, and one was a junkyard dog action figure. Uh, so those were I think my two favorite wrestlers. And I had an Ultimate Warrior wrestling buddy. Do you remember those? Oh yeah, I wrestled yeah. them often. I had yeah, I had an Ultimate Warrior wrestling buddy. Um, yeah, I was big. I was big. As big in I was bigger into that than I was the NFL back then. To be honest.
1: Well, I think they're nuts to try to do this uh, pay-per-view without a champion. You can maybe get away with one show, but I can't see them uh, actually trying to do it until... Unless,
2: unless, you know, they're, I mean, thinking that they're building up, they're going to have him at the last minute come in, and it's sort of like the drama of that. Yeah, that's that's a possibility.
1: But you've got to check out the work that Paul Heyman does on the mic. Paul Heyman is the... uh, uh, the advocate, he calls himself, of Brock Lesnar, the champion. And that guy does Hall of Fame work on the mic. I mean, he might be uh, the greatest of all time when it comes to working the mic. Uh, and if he's not, it's probably The Rock, who was on a couple weeks ago. Uh, I guess just out of a coincidence of scheduling with them being in Brooklyn. And he, he killed it as well. Uh, but, um, all right, got to wrap this. Adam, thanks so much for doing it and being on. Really appreciate it. I thanks for having, having you. Did uh, you get everything out you wanted uh, as far as plugs and everything like that? Yeah, just Lazarus A 57 I'd love to hear from people on Twitter about anything that
2: I said tonight or anything you see on, on my website or on my uh, Twitter profile. So if you want to hit me up there, I'd, I'd love to have a chat. And I'd love to come back another time. Definitely get you guys an advanced copy of my book when it comes out next year. And I hope, hope to be
1: back on the show then. Thanks, bud. All right, we
0: good?
1: Hold on.